Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, folks. This is a very lengthy episode, the longest ever, in fact, at just shy of four hours. The reason being, I have eight pitches for you today all looking at what is the greatest on-screen depiction of the Napoleonic era, a discussion which exploded on Twitter over the new year with such force that it clearly needed a careful and detailed treatment. Because it's so long, I'm expecting and hoping, at the very least, that folks will listen, but then also come back and break it down, because nobody really has the time to sit down and listen to four solid hours of podcasting. I do understand that. But there are lots of pitches covering a wide variety of topics. So what I want to do to help you navigate your way around this is just give you some time markers so that you can pause the recording and then find your way back to where you were at at a later stage. So here goes. At 11 minutes in, Charlie White will be pitching that Hamilton woman. At 38 minutes in, Kirsty McKenzie pitches All for Love, sometimes known as Santive. At 1 hour and 10 minutes, Everett Rummage pitches The Duelists. At 1 hour 27, Matt Bone pitches Gantz's 1921 silent film Napoleon. And then at the two hour mark, we have a discussion of honourable mentions for the first half. And that wraps up the first half of the episode. The second half, this is effectively a double episode mashed together into one, begins with Tom Fournier at around about 2 hours and 12 minutes, pitching the 1970 film Waterloo. That's followed at 2 hours 28 by Josh Proven, pitching Bondachuk's production of War and Peace. Then at 2 hours 57, you have me pitching the 2003 film Master and Commander. At 3 hours and 18, Marcus Cribb pitches the Sharp series. And at 3 hours and 35, we discuss honourable mentions amongst the participants of part two. Brace yourselves. This is going to be an epic monstrosity of an episode. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Napoleonicist. Happy New Year, listeners. 
This one wasn't actually heading your way anytime soon. On New Year's Day, I stuck out what was meant to be just a throwaway tweet, asking people what they thought was the greatest on-screen depiction of the Napoleonic era. And everybody just went absolutely mental. And I got inundated with complaints about the fact that three of the suggestions that I made, and they were only suggestions, folks, um, but three of them factored in the British, but folks, can we just please acknowledge four of them factored in the French? So, you know, balance was, balance was brought to the force that way. Um, for context, I put in the 2016 War and Peace, which apparently everybody hates, but I didn't realize people remembered the earlier versions. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I got slapped down there. Master and Commander, which will feature much, much later in this episode. Uh, Sharp series, again, that will feature in, in the second part. And uh, Waterloo 1970, which again is going to feature in the second part. The reason I say second part is because it became very obvious that four wasn't going to cut it. And so if I brought in some people to pitch four, basically you'd all just start hurling abuse at me for not factoring in others. So we are going to solve that by basically making this a double episode merged into one. So just to make you feel really bad, I'm doing a lot of work to make this happen and to bring this to you, okay? Um, so the idea is that tonight I am recording with, with four folks and then a few nights down the line, but through editing, editing trickery a few seconds later, you're gonna get some more pitches. Uh, joining me, on this, what is going to be an odyssey of a journey, are Charlotte White, who folks won't know from a Napoleonic angle, but if you ever listen to me on History Hack, the other podcast that I work on, uh, you will know that I have a habit of referring to her as my podcasting wife. She's not actually a relation, um, at least not as far as we are aware of anyway. Um, but Charlie's specialism is actually the restoration period. She's a historian, she's a presenter, she's an all-round brain box. She does incredible stuff with baking and cookery that I just don't understand because I'm useless in that sphere. Um, so go and check out her, her Twitter feed, uh, Restoration Cake. Charlie, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me on, Zach, my lovely podcasting husband. Well, you're, you're bringing some of the glamour to the show, um, not just in, in your own physical form, but also bringing some of the restoration era glamour, which I do kind of consider as a second historical home. We also have Matt Bone, who's a very good friend of mine. You, if you listen to my kind of begging letter that I tag on the end of every episode where I ask my Patreon supporters, or um, well, I ask people to become Patreon supporters, but also do a shout out to them. You all know Matt's name because he's one of my very generous commander patrons. That's not why he's here tonight, all right? He's not on the show because he's very generous. Uh, Matt is also a very good friend of mine who again works with me on History Hack. And he and I do a lot of kind of chat about kind of modern-ish history, which admittedly I'm just kind of a bit moronic on, but Matt really knows his plane history and his car history and and whole things where I just kind of sit there like a slack-jawed idiot and go, well, this guy really knows his stuff. Um, but Matt also has a, a bit of a, an interest in the Napoleonic era and a bit of a hatred for Napoleon. So, you know, you're, you're going to go down very well with some listeners and not so well with other listeners. Matt, good to see you. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing very well, mate. It's, thank you for having me. It's very, very strange. It feels, it feels like a, a slightly new coat. It's familiar, yet slightly different as we're 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 on a different channel today so yes thank, thanks for having me i'm looking forward to this It'll be a giggle 
Absolutely. And folks, I'm going to plug History Hack again. Um, go have a look at it, but also particularly go and have a listen to Hedgehopping, which is Matt's specific kind of section where he talks about plainy stuff in the Second World War, which I'm going to have to admit I do rather love because I love a bit of World War II aviation history. Um, so go and have a look for Hedgehopping on the History Hack channel. You're too kind, sir. Thank you. I'm, I'm just honest. And I'm going to continue in that honesty vein. Um, because my next guest is Everett Rummage. There is a phrase in life that you should know when you are beaten. And if you're a podcaster of the Napoleonic era, you know before you've even started, by God, are you beaten? <laughs> because Everett is the creator and host of Age of Napoleon, which is the daddy of Napoleonic podcasting. If you type Napoleon podcast into Google, you will find Agent Napoleon coming up absolutely plum dead first, and quite rightly so. Everett, great to see you. How are you doing? Well, I'm slightly embarrassed at that lovely introduction, but I've never been better. Uh, that's great to hear, but I, I'm only speaking the truth. And last but by no means least, we have Dr. Kirstine McKenzie joining us. Now, like Charlie, Kirstine is a devotee of what I sort of vaguely call the English Civil War slash period. But, but, can I be very particular in how I'm going to describe Kirsty's expertise? Because she's an expert of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, which is important because there's a distinction between what's happening in England and the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. And I'm really, I'm getting applause from Charlie. So, so clearly I've managed to make sure that I've, I've done that one properly. So her particular expertise is 1638 to 1660, Charlie's expertise being restoration period and Charles II and so on. Uh, but she's also an expert on the Jacobites and she has a book that's come out very recently, Solemn League and Covenant of the Three Kingdoms and Cromwellian Union. So if you're a fan of that period, go have a little read of that book. Actually, I did interview Kirstein for History Hack. So go and have a look at the back catalogues there. And I'm, I'm doing a really bad job of kind of <laughs> advertising. You shouldn't advertise other shows on your own show, but I'm, I'm just throwing that rule out of the window. But Kirstine, great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. And thank you so much for inviting me uh, on, this, on this podcast. And as I say, even though like Charlie, I'm an early modernist, I grew up watching Sharp and Hornblower uh, on TV, and I uh, I am interested in that era, albeit a sort of um, an extra in terms of, you know, uh, it's not necessarily my expertise, but I certainly do enjoy reading about it when I, when I get the chance. What I'm quite liking about this, particularly this half, the second half, okay, I'm going to bring in some, um, some names who you might be more familiar with if you kind of move in the Napoleonic Twitter sphere. But in this half, Everett aside, um, you know, you've got some people who aren't known for their Napoleonics, which I think is going to change the tone. And instead, what we're going to end up doing tonight is focusing more on the film as a means of enjoyment and what it means to make a good film, as opposed to the sort of historical purist perspective that I might be more inclined to go down if, if I were trying to put this together, which is to what extent does it represent reality? And I think that's actually a really important distinction to make because actually the job of a film is to entertain. It's not to provide an absolutely perfect representation. There are lots of on-screen representations that I've bashed in the past, not least the recent Vanity Fair, where people have gone in the kind of the 
hubris and the build-up to this oh it's an exact replication of what it was like to be at the battle of waterloo and you look at it as a historian and go no mate it's really not so i think the fact that we we've got some people who just kind of appreciate the period but want to talk about films that they love is going to be particularly great we've done a lot of preamble talking i think it's time we actually start talking some serious filmy stuff um, and I'm going to go to Charlie, because Charlie, you are a bit of a, a film expert. You studied film, didn't you, when you were at uni? So we're going to start with a bang and we're going to start with you. OK, right. Yes, I, I do have a film degree. This is this is true. This is something I I own proudly. And any chance that I get to use this expensive film degree gives me a lot of pleasure. So I I adore cinema I will watch anything I particularly love classic Hollywood and films that are glamorous they're gorgeous to look at I want romance I want costumes if I can get Vivian Lee I'm incredibly happy so I'm going to be talking today about that Hamilton woman now this was a film that I hadn't seen and one that I'd picked up for the princely sum of I think three pounds in a supermarket and it was when you used to go inside a supermarket and just look around a bit before doing your shopping do you remember those days those hazy days gone by uh, and this this was there and it was the cover just looked like I was going to enjoy it so I picked it up threw it in my basket with my my groceries and took it home so that Hamilton woman released in 1941, directed and produced by Alexander Corder, starring Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier. Check, check, check. And thank you very much. I knew that I was going to enjoy that Hamilton woman. Being unencumbered by any knowledge of the Napoleonic Wars, I felt sure that I was really going to enjoy it. Remember the pure, unadulterated pleasure of watching a movie, chowing down on your popcorn and not noticing the wrong tanks in service, or that they seem to have confused the first and second Dukes of Buckingham, which is completely unfathomable to anybody. So let's instead focus on everything that I know is right with that Hamilton woman. It's the story of the romance between renowned naval hero and column dweller Nelson, and the famously beautiful and famously married Emma Hamilton. It's a tale of love and war and double adultery with a load of boats thrown in for good measure. Vivian Lee owed Corder one last film on her contract, and this was the film that she made to honor it, despite having huge global success as Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. So check your dates here. Gone with the Wind comes out 1939, absolute smash hit. This is filmed in 1940 and comes out 1941. So the Vivian Lee you see on screen here is Scarlett O'Hara level of gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. It was the third and final film that she made with her husband, Laurence Olivier, and the only one that they shot during their marriage. Now, I adore the chemistry of a real couple on screen, don't you? It's just got an extra added level, especially when you've got a couple of such hammy thespians. Oh, you can just imagine the rehearsals, gorgeous. So as I said, the film was shot in 1940, which totally makes it a war movie made during wartime. 
Yes, which is always very interesting to watch. Olivier's Henry V is another great war movie shot during wartime if you really want to treat yourself. It was shot entirely in sequence, and that's an unusual thing. All with the exception of these two bizarre bookends, which show Emma Hamilton as destitute on the streets of Paris. Now, this is where you have to give Hollywood a little bit of a free pass when it comes to historical accuracy, especially at this time, because the self-imposed production code meant that an adulterer could not be seen to get away with their crimes against morality. So regardless of what happened to Emma Hamilton, it doesn't matter. She had to be punished for having an affair that had to happen. So these bookends of Emma Hamilton's sad demise were just added to pass the censors. That's the only reason they're there. They feel added on and anyone with any previous knowledge or awareness of the code and code era films should know just to ignore them from the vibe of the original story. They're, they're a historical document in and of themselves of a time when that was what Hollywood needed to do. You know, That's why we have cigarettes as sex and one foot on the floor at all times if you're sitting on a bed and all of these kinds of things that, that have, to, have to be done for the production code. So I don't actually know what became of Emma Hamilton. This is how much of a novice I am to this area of history. So I hope that someone will enlighten me tonight because I really genuinely do want to know. So aside from the, the romance, the punishment of the, of the lapse in morality there and the look of the whole thing in glorious black and white, everything just, the lighting in it is delicious, absolutely gorgeous. What I really loved about this film were the naval battle scenes. Now, okay, again, please remember this is not my area of expertise and not something that I, I know anything about. I can't say whether the depiction of the battles was good or bad or wholly offensive. And believe me, I've been offended by a great number of films set in the restoration for crimes far less heinous than getting an entire battle wrong. I, I, I did a whole rant about a rubber nose. I mean, seriously, I, I get upset about these things. But what I do have some previous in is in thinking about filmmaking and in special effects in particular. You see, I wrote my only academic dissertation in this lifetime on superhero movies. And I recognize great special effects when I see them. Because perhaps contrary to what you might assume, I happen to think that computer generated special effects date far quicker and far more obviously to the viewer than some really well done model work. To back this up with an example, we sat and watched the first Marvel Spider-Man over Christmas, you know the one. Uh, Toby Maguire hangs upside down and snogs Kirsten Dunst in the rain. Well, some of those CGI Spider-Men look proper shonky, and that only came out 20 years ago. Now go and watch Superman 1978. Go on, treat yourself. You know you want to. Christopher Reeve hanging from the ceiling, bit of green screen, bit of back projection, and it still looks like he could fly. The model work in that Hamilton woman was designed by Vincent Corder. He's the director and producer's brother. And his scale model of the HMS Victory could be seen on display at Chatham Dockyards. Google pictures of it. It is absolutely incredible. The detail on it. Again, I can't tell you if it's accurate, but it's very, very detailed. 
and it's beautiful. I tried to ascertain for this this podcast whether or not it is still on display, but the Chatham Dockyard website is not exactly easy to navigate. If nothing else, I hope that you will try and watch The Hamilton Woman. It was Winston Churchill's favourite film. Uh, I also read, I don't know if it's true, you know how you sort of have to take these things with a little bit of a pinch of salt. Apparently it was Stalin's favourite film as well. So, you know, everyone loves it. It was made in something of a golden age for British cinema. British cinema in the the 40s and 50s. There's some incredible films that, that you should love. It's got gorgeous costumes, of course. Gorgeous Vivian Lee. It's got double Oscar winning acting. So both Lee and Olivier won Oscars. She'd already won hers for Scarlett O'Hara and she would go on and win another one for Streetcar Named Desire. Olivier wins his a little bit later for Hamlet. Um, But you know, if you've got one in you, you've got one in you. And there are toy boats blowing the hell out of each other. What is not to like? I have a feeling that some members of the panel are about to tell me what's not to like about it. So um, yeah. Sorry, I think I'm losing signal. Um, It's breaking up. Best Napoleonic film ever, no backsies. That was a very crafty move by Charlie because there was absolutely no breakup in that recording whatsoever. And I have no qualms in um, dropping her in it on that one. No. (laughs) No, even my podcasting wife doesn't get away you know no special treatment on the napoleon assist i'm very very sorry um thank you charlie however way to start this off um to clear up for folks who aren't familiar um emma hamilton died in january 1815 uh, age 49 she's buried at what sorry correction she was buried uh, in calais but the grave has since been lost um there are questions about whether or not she had a, a laudanum addiction towards the end of her life that may or may not just be kind of stigma that was piled upon her um whether or not she died in poverty i hear different things about um but certainly she wasn't looked after by the nation as nelson would have liked um and he he wouldn't have been happy with the way in which emma was was treated after his death she certainly didn't kind of benefit from any association um with nelson she was very much kind of pushed to one side and it was uh, Francis Nisbet, who his his wife, Nelson's wife, who um, became the focus of you know his his honours and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, a sad end for Emma. Um, so I they got what... that right almost in a way. Yeah. So they they yeah. did end the film in was it eighteen fifteen? You said yes. Yeah, so they did, that's where the film ends. And she was in, she was in France. I just assumed it was Paris because they didn't sort of say, here we are. Um, so maybe, and she did seem a bit drug addled. Interesting. Okay. Um, I love what you say about the 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 husband-wife kind of leading uh leading duo there is there a kind of cleopatra level of chemistry because that's the one that everybody goes to Uh, isn't it is is there that or is are they not allowed to have that because of the era in which it's produced you're absolutely right they're not allowed to have that even a married couple could not be you know getting an own on screen they're still they're still portraying adulterers this is this is not going to happen and yes they're not going to be getting it on but on the sliding scale 
And because Olivier is is much more of the traditional actor from the from stage, it's not as hot as when you get Burton and Taylor. But then, you know, you look forward, it's still not Mr. and Mrs. Smith levels of if I was Jennifer Aniston, I'd be really upset about this kind of stuff. Fair enough. I've always wondered also about the title because it just reeks of misogyny. Mm that Hamilton woman and this is why it was a little bit of a surprise to me when you said yeah okay I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of plump for this one because folks won't know if they don't listen to History Hack that you are rightly a huge (laughs) raging feminist and I hugely enjoy your feminist rants um but the the misogyny is that that kind of dripped through the film is this kind of oh, look, Nelson being led astray, or is this kind of look? The two of them were just in love. It just clicked for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find it very, very sympathetic towards Emma Hamilton, just because, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's taking to it what, what we saw in Gone with the Wind and a character like Scarlett O'Hara, who is transgressive. She is not an, an easy woman, shall we say. She is, she's difficult and she gets what she wants and she's awful. But, you know, she 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 gets her guy. She does what she's got to do. But with with Emma Hamilton, it's it's interesting because she her mother is in it a lot. Her mother is a very big character in this. And again, I don't know how accurate this is, but she has she has her mother and she sort of rocks up at Hamilton's place and kind of becomes his his lover because she's been sold to settle some gambling debts by her partner so she's she's got involved she's a girl of no great birth this is according to the film I don't know if this is this is true but the way that the film plays it is that she's she's not got much except that she's beautiful and charming and that can get a woman a very very long way with the right husband so she's been seeing this guy who has been promising to marry her promising to marry her but is a degenerate gambler and is effectively sold her off to his uncle who is the duke of duke of hamilton i believe he's a duke is he a duke um he's certainly lord hamilton he's a lord Um, isn't he yeah i'm just looking through my notes to see if i can see any anywhere if i've noted down his status but um but that's what happens and she she finds out he's very open with her that you know i i thought you were beautiful and and she's very upset she thinks he's kind of bought her like he buys antiquities so he's got a lot of beautiful roman statues about the place that he's acquiring for himself and uh so she's got a mother who's almost just kind of going along for the ride she's not the she's not the kind of tiger mum she's not pushing this to happen she's just sort of brought along for the ride and it's all very much by lady hamilton's agency they portray hamilton as being almost quite weak and quite uh, bureaucratic. So there's a point in the film where, so they're in Milan. There's a point in the film where the British need Milan's support against Napoleon and all, you know, shit's hitting the fam. We need, we need some men to come and fight, please. And Hamilton tells Nelson, because of course it's Nelson who goes to, to try and get the men. Hamilton says that he's going to get an appointment with the king because he knows the king very well and that he should have an appointment within the week. But Emma Hamilton is friendly with the queen and 
takes Nelson to see the Queen then and there. That's you know, they they just go in and speak to her, and the Queen then speaks to the King and makes it happen. So it, it does feel in the film that actually it's the women who make things happen and almost the men are kind of being swept along a little bit for the ride, despite the fact, obviously, they do the fighting, the killing and the, the dying and the, um, the actual business of the film. Seems pretty accurate of life, isn't it? But, you know, <laughs> the, the women are the ones who do things and, and the, the men are the ones who are along for the ride. But um, in terms of offensive films from the 1940s and, and treatment and portrayal of women, this is not up there. This is not, this is not sort of hysterical crying woman getting slapped around the face and told to pull herself together kind of stuff. This is, this is as, as 1940s films go, I'd say this is a fairly, this is tick from feminists. It's all right. <laughs> okay, though, let me open it up. I don't want to hog the mic tonight. Folks, I'm, I'm just going to let you, you come in on this, whether you want to talk about the history, whether you just want to talk about um, the film and kind of your thoughts on it. Take it away. Uh, Matt, do you want to go first on this one? I love this film. When I saw Charlie was doing it, I just went, oh, damn. <laughs> she, she always does this to me when we do these sorts of things. Um, I'm a big Alexander Corder fan. Anyway. The, man, the man was a genius. Um, it's, it's funny. I was just looking this up. It was written, co-written by R.C. Sheriff, who wrote Journey's End, which is an yeah. interesting little bit of sort of filming things, which gave Olivier his break in the West End. So there, there you go. go. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm. Why would um, each other? Yeah, they do. It's, I, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's a classic. It's, it's very specific for what it's trying to do. But then again, it's all building up to this 1940s thing of sacrifice. So, you know, the, the whole Nelson death thing goes on for what feels like ever. Um, and gra granted, you get all the boats blowing themselves up and things like that. And it, it's great. Um, but it's very much of its time. It's that same sort of the hero must sacrifice himself and specifically himself, you know, the, 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 you know, the sacrifice Hamilton had to go through afterwards to kind of not fight the corners as far as she could have, it's not really shown. It's just shown that she has, to, as you know, she has to pay for, pay for her sins. And it's this whole early, early war sort of duty and honor thing that is just shining through in, in the film, which um, Olivier does quite, quite, quite a bit at, at at this period you mentioned henry v but no it's 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 great it looks amazing vividly just sort of is transcendent on the screen on it um and yeah no i i, I like it it's a, it's a really good show and if you haven't seen it go go watch it because it is it's it's ace there's a weird rumor and again this is this is just sort of an, an internet rumor so i can't verify it but they they said that um one of one of churchill's hobbies was writing for movies as a ghostwriter, and that he may have written two of Nelson's speeches in this film. And I do know that after this film came out, uh, Vivian Lee and Winston Churchill became really fast friends. They they had a dinner, the Churchills and the Olivier Lees, and they kept writing to each other, and they wrote together, wrote to each other for the rest of rest of her life. Um, I think, yeah, she died before he did. And their letters were, uh, they're owned by the V&A, which is quite cute. Ah, so there are no references to sort of Nelson going, you know, we will fight them on the beaches or anything like that. You could see him doing it. 
<laughs> you could, couldn't you? Nelson didn't fare too well on the land. Lost his arm on the land. You should stay on the water. Fight him on the fight him on the water. That should be Fight Nelson. him on the water. <laughs> I do and nowhere believe, else. I do believe we've just trolled Nelson on the Napoleonicist. That was very well done, Everett. Let me stay with you um, whilst we're on that roll. Any thoughts on this one? Yeah, well, can I ask? Oh, sorry. No, I just wanted to ask Charlotte a question. You mentioned the, the Second World War when you, you quoted all this kind of, and Churchill took an interest. Mm. How did it deal with the French in this film? Because obviously this is was was released during the Second World War, and it's the Napoleonic era. And of course, you've got de Gaulle in Britain at the time, and of course, Churchill's trying to build this alliance. How did they deal with the French in this film? What's the tone like? Can That's I just ask, why the hell did I not think of that question? That's yes, a belter that... of a question, and I'm appalled. Brilliant question. I think I might just make you the host from now on, Kirstine. <laughs> that is a brilliant question. I'd never thought about it like that, but I guess it's probably why they very much only talk about Napoleon. So it's like you're fighting, a, fighting the boogeyman. You're not fighting... Um, you're not fighting a country. And I, I couldn't tell you for sure without going back and watching it again with that in my mind. But I think that it is very much talking about fighting Napoleon. We have to get him rather than being, we've we got to trounce the French. But that's just, just from, my, from my memory of it. But that is so interesting. I'd never thought of that. And it's a problem with Henry V as well, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting because that's very sort of spirit of 1815. Mm. Um, Napoleon's return from Elba, declare war on Napoleon, not the French, mm. which wouldn't have been the spirit of 1790s, early 1800s, where there's, you know, fighting a revolutionary movement in France and the extent to which that did or didn't represent a, a threat to the established order across Ancien Regime Europe. Mm. Um, we've suddenly gone very sort of rabbit hole into history. Um, Everett, save us. What are your What are your thoughts on on that Hamilton woman? Well, um, this is something I kind of wish I, I would be interested to see someone revisit this story in modern times with modern mores about romantic relationships, because I've always been fascinated by the Hamiltons' marriage. Um, him being, I think he was 35 years older than her, something like that. Quite a bit older, let's put it that way. Um, and they seem to have been pretty cordial even after her relationship with Nelson began. And I've always wondered, the, Nelson, um, the Hamiltons and Nelson kind of formed a little team down, down in Naples. You know, that, that was kind of the, the you know, the British representation at the Neapolitan court was very much kind of like those three rather than just the ambassador. And um, I've always wondered if maybe there was sort of, perhaps not explicitly, but maybe tacitly some kind of, I don't know, agreement, arrangement there where they were all okay with all that was going on, which you know, I don't think a movie in the 40s, I mean, I, I don't, I know in America, at least that wouldn't be legal to depict uh, a relationship like that on the screen. Um, so I would be curious to see a modern filmmaker revisit that and maybe 
uh, delve into what what exactly was going on there. No, I think that that's a really interesting point. I mean, you know, the the ethics and morals that we have around relationships and marriage are not the same today as they were in, you know, in, in in the 19th, early 19th, late 18th century, and certainly not the 17th, as, as Kirstine will, will tell you as well from, from our area. You know, there's this, this whole really sad poem that, from the 17th century about, you know, pity the poor man who loves his wife because adultery was just something that was expected to happen. It was, you know, people that, and you know, for a, a man to go and, visit brothels was not it wasn't an unusual thing it wasn't a shameful thing it was just something you did when you're out with the lads it's you, we, we have a very different code on that now and the fact that there was a production code that that was actually put on the telling of a story so you can't explore it you can't look into into that and as he's as you say if, if Hamilton and his wife had an agreement then no one's getting hurt. I, I felt for I felt very much for for Nelson's wife in the film. She's she's portrayed as being much older. Um, I don't know if if that's the case as well, but she's been at Nelson's family home caring for Nelson's dad, who seems to be a, an invalid of some sort. Um, I think he's he's in a in a wheelchair or some something like he's or elderly it's it's all quite confusing because they don't really sort of talk about it. he just turns up when nelson comes back for his victory parade and he's very very happy and very excited about it and i think a bit drunk um so so it would be incredibly interesting to see this done again but i don't think they could do it with the beauty that you can that you could get in a film in the 40s i don't think they could have that there certainly won't be that glamour and and yeah yeah, I think that's that's fair, but it's a very good shout, uh, Everett. And like you say, that that relationship between the Hamiltons, plural, and and Nelson is fascinating. Not least because it was a sort of three, as you say, a three-way sort of power dynamic and a power triplet, if you will, within uh, the Southern Mediterranean. But as you, you know, when they come back to Britain, don't they live together in this kind of menage a trois? scenario so you've got both Hamiltons living with Nelson um so it's it's a really curious relationship and um Hamilton in the seems film to... I think he just sets her up in a house I didn't don't know if if he's shown as the husband being there as well I think she does eventually leave seem to leave him in the film and and also have a child by Nelson yeah, yeah that's well. that Yes. What's the name of the daughter? <laughs> in well, case anyone was in doubt as to who the father was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't very subtle, but it's very Nelsonian, isn't it? You know, you, yeah. it's, I've got a daughter. Okay, so we can't go with Horatia. Horatia, that's the solution. We'll just change the vowel on the end. Job done. Oh, um, mate, you haven't, you haven't been to Rome. Go to ancient Rome. <laughs> and then when, they, when they've done the same name twice and you've got Agrippina, you end up with Agrippinilla, which is who's daughter of Agrippa it's just it it's confusing as all hell we need more names people absolutely <laughs> Charlie what a great start to an episode thank you so much for that um I am gonna go straight to Kirstine next okay 
yeah, so as I say, um, the, 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 the film that I'm talking about was, uh, is, well, it's basically a BBC film and it was done in, released in 1998. And it's called All For Love or Sintiv. And it's a film star, starring Richard E. Grant, Miranda Richardson, Anna Friel and Jason Isaacs and John Mark Barr. So it's got a, a good cast attached to it. Um, I felt that it's kind of been overlooked because unfortunately, obviously that was the decade, the time when they had Sharp, they had Hornblower, they had Pride and Prejudice in 1995 with the BBC, it took off, and then the ITV had Mal Flanders. So there was a period in the 90s where there was all these period dramas. Obviously as well, um, listeners may recall that Richard E. Grant played the Scarlet Pimpernel in the BBC's Scarlet Pimpernel, which was slightly before this film. And I think that's why he was possibly cast in this particular film. And um, as I say, I think it's a gem that's been overlooked. Certainly if you go on to the IMDb, there's a lot of positive reviews. And a lot of people say it's very, very funny. And, and I can completely agree with that. So if you're a sort of Napoleon historian who's intent on watching a film looking for the historical accuracies, um, and, and once everything historically accurate, don't watch this film. It will, will probably annoy you. Although I can't possibly tell. Again, like Charlie, I'm an early modernist, so I wouldn't know the difference between what was, was accurate and what wasn't. Uh, as I say, as a teenager, I put it on to enjoy it. In fact, the, 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 the lead character at the time, um, Jacques Santive, played by John Mark Barr, looked quite attractive <laughs> so that was appealing to me as a teenager and and that's one of the key reasons why I watched it. Another reason why I watched it is that this film is derived from the novel Saint-Yves um, which was written by Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson and this was written uh, this novel was written when Robert Louis Stevenson was ill so when he wrote the novel which this film is based on not only was it unfinished but also he was very ill at the time, so he dictated the novel from his bed. So it's, it's, I had a look at the novel a few days ago, and it's very odd to start on chapter four. I have to admit, I thought something had gone wrong with my Kindle. I was looking back to see if I could start from the beginning, and I thought, oh, so he, he didn't finish it. And I presumed it meant the end of the novel. I didn't think it would be the beginning, but but if you if you download the unfinished novel by Robert Louis Stevenson, you'll find that you'll start in chapter four, which is which is which is interesting. So you plunge straight in. However, the, the the people who wrote the film obviously had to fill in the beginning and some context, and I think they did this particularly well. So as I say, the film is very lighthearted. It's very funny, and it is romantic. It's one of these romance films okay so it's not swashbuckling battles or naval battles or you know it, it is very very romantic so the story uh, is basically um jack santif is a hussar um hussar in the napoleonic wars and he lost his family during the french revolution when we first meet him in the film he is a ladies man he constantly upsets his fellow soldiers and superiors with insults and he's consistently engaged in duels. Um, his commanding officer, whom he also insults, calls him a blackguard and demotes him for his behaviour. 
And he's now private at this stage, and he then hatches a plan to arrest a few hundred British soldiers um, single-handedly to regain his rank. But this fails spectacularly, and he is taken prisoner by the British. Jack is now a prisoner of war in the Scottish Highlands. His life consists of making toys in his prison cell for tourists to, for the tourists of the prison to buy. Um, it is here that we meet Flora and her aunt, Miss Gilchrist. Flora and Jack instantly have a connection at the prison, while Major Farquhar, as he calls himself. Now, there's an in, in, there's an in joke here that, that Scots will get that maybe non-Scots won't get. He calls himself Major Farquhar, but really uh, we, we would say Facker in, in Scots. So, um, so there's an in joke there um, that he, you know, he's literally grand. He's got a very, very posh English voice, and he calls himself Major Farquhar. Uh, we know up here, it, yeah, she pronounced it Facker. Now, there's obviously reasons why they did this, <laughs> because there are probably complaints going to Ofcom if they pronounce it. Again, it adds comedy, comedy to the film. As he, called him, as, he, as he calls himself Farquhar. And, and there's an element to this that I will discuss later on, which is quite interesting. Um, he's trying to impress Miss Gilchrist, who he fancies, and he attempts to do this by showing her his gun placement on the prison walls, because um, he thinks that's you know, how you chat up ladies. Um, Flora instantly notices on Jack's toy, um, that there's a crest on the toy. And so Jack explains that this is his family crest. And so at this point, we know that he's from an aristocratic French family. Um, so he's, he's not of the revolutionary sort of um, Robespierre stable. He's, he's an aristocrat who came from an aristocratic family and they unfortunately get executed during the revolution and he then joins the, the French army, as he says, it's, it's like his family. And then he climbs the ranks and he, he becomes one of Napoleon's hussars. One of the funniest scenes at this stage in the film is Major Farquhar summoning, summoning Jacks, Jack to his office because the Frenchies are, are better at romance than, than himself. So he's wanting tips on how to chat up women. So Jack instructs the major and he says you have to compliment the lady, you have to say nice things such as this. So Jack rehearses some of his romantic lines that he, 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 he said to women over the years. And so he asks the major to repeat the lines back to him, which the major does, obviously not as good as Jack himself, but he tries his best. Unfortunately for Major Farquhar, one of his law officers is listening to the conversation in the office and he thinks that Major Farquhar is gay and he comes on to him later on in the film. It's absolutely hilarious. It's, it's classic. Um, and as I say, Richard E. Grant plays this character really, really well. I think it's one of his best roles and the, the, the comedic timing is fantastic. Um, so despite the fact that Jack has helped Major Farquhar with his, his romantic dilemmas, um, Jack attempts to escape from the prison. 
Um, but in the meantime, uh, during this process, we learn that Jack's grandfather has survived the revolution and lives nearby. And this is what's actually in the book. Um, Flora is aware of obviously this because she's seen the crest on the toy that Jack was making. And he meets, she meets the grandfather to show him the toy with the crest and says, I think this is your grandson. However, during this scene, we find out that Jack also has a brother called Alain. But in contrast to Jack, Alain is a bit of a waste of space. To put it bluntly, he's a very unsavory character. He's a drunk, he's a whoremaster, and he's seen as an utter disappointment to his grandfather. Jack is on the run at this time and arrives at his grandfather's house, and his grandfather identifies him as the sole heir to his fortune. Unsurprisingly, Alan goes crazy and in his anger, he attempts to shoot his brother and he kills his grandfather. Again, amongst these quite serious scenes, there's actually one of the funny scenes in the film. And again, it's with Richard E. Grant as Farquhar, who has been invited to Miss Gilchrist for tea. Um, Farquhar is a social disaster. He fails to pull off the romantic lines that Jack has taught him. He chokes on the hubbly bubbly um, that uh, Miss Gilchrist smokes. Um, and we find out that during this scene, the major has led a very narrow life um, until this point. And the furthest he's been, despite being in the army for years, is Salisbury. Uh, in contrast, Miss Gilchrist has uh, traveled through Europe. She's been to the Ottoman Empire. She's been in Persia. Um, in her parting shot to Farquhar at the end of the dinner, she suggests that he needs an alternative name to make him sound more manly. Now, this is quite ironic. Again, it's an in-joke if you're Scottish, because Farquhar comes from the word man in Gaelic, and it does actually mean manly. And, and Richard E. Grant explains this while he, he speaks to her, but she says, no, 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 you need a more manly name. And this has very, very funny consequences later on. Jack is on the run again, obviously, because his brother tried to shoot him, and he's found by Flora, who takes him to her aunt's house without her knowledge. Flora cleans Jack's wound, and their romance blossoms. Yet her aunt finds out, yet chooses to hide the French prisoner because she doesn't want to get Flora into trouble. The Major and his men are now looking for the prisoner, and Major Farquhar knocks at the door and declares himself Hercules. So he's obviously taken with Gilchrist's uh, uh, advice and he now calls himself Hercules to make him sound more manly. So after a quick search of the house, Miss Gilchrist comes on Farquhar so strongly that she probably, as assumed would do, he flees away in abject terror. And all this is really, really funny. And in the following morning, Jack overhears that the Major has invited Miss Gilchrist and her niece to a mass ball. Jack turns up, dances with Flora, and there's obviously a romantic connection there. Yet at that point, he finds out that his brother has killed his grandfather because his brother's introduced as a Constantine. So then a big fight ensues, and Jack ends up escaping in a hot air balloon to France. Um, with the hapless Major Farquhar trying to stop Jack, but ends up, you know, angling from the balloon. It's, it, again, it's a comedic element. It's very, very funny. 
and the balloon ends up going all the way to France. Now, the writers realizing the impossibility of a balloon flight going from Scotland to France was quite a leap of the imagination, even for the 18th century, put in a line which Richard E. Grant says, surely a balloon ride between Scotland and France is a record. <laughs> Again, adds to the comedic element. Um, it, as I say, it's very lighthearted. It's very, very fun and not to be taken seriously. Um, Farquhar, as I say, when he's in France, so he, he eventually gets out of the country. So he's now travelled, so he'd be pleased with that. He's in France and he ends up in an English camp. Jack is back with his old regiment and is re-promoted as a hussar because um, in his commanding officer's words, there are need of blackguards like him. We see Jack as a changed man. He's not interested in, in, a, in another woman, um, unlike his friend. His friend's like, oh, look at that woman over there. Look at that woman over there. He's, he's not interested. So it's clear that he's fallen in love with Flora. Meanwhile, Flora is worried about Jack and convinces her aunt to take her to France, which she does. They meet Francois at the English camp and they are kidnapped and held hostage by Alan and his friend as bait for poor Jack who fights with them. Alan loses his, uh, Alan loses and, and is mortally wounded. Jack is severely wounded but is taken to the English camp hospital for treatment where they hear that the war has ended and peace has been declared in Paris as there's been the surrender. And it, right at the end, there's a double wedding between Jack and Flora, and then, of course, Miss Gilchrist and Major Farquhar. So why do I like this film, then? I, I've gone through the, the whole plot in order to explain why I, I think this film is great, and, 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 is, and I think it's a shame that it's overlooked. Apart from the fact that it's lighthearted and funny approach to the period, Perhaps some of its most underlying subtexts and messages have been overlooked. The broadcast title was called All for Love, but if you go on the IMDb, you'll find it under Santive, which is, was obviously the, the name of the novel. It's not only about two romances between Flora and Jack and Miss Gilchrist and Farquhar, but it's also about forgiveness. In the film, Jack forgives his grandfather for abandoning him because he realizes that his grandfather didn't abandon him. He had to flee the revolution and, and the whole story comes out that it, it was quite traumatic. Then just before Alan dies, when he's mortally wounded, he forgives Jack and Jack forgives him. So it's, it's also about forgiveness. There's also an overarching theme of forgiveness and love in spite of war. So love blossoms between Flora, whose father was killed by the French in a naval battle and Jack, who was obviously the Napoleonic Hussar. Indeed, the weddings at the end, again, are once obviously the peace has been declared, the weddings at the end uh, are also an indicator of this theme that the war's over and that the, the, the French and the British are, are getting married. Although the comedy element certainly lifts the mood of the film above the original book, which is more serious, which is not surprising considering Robert Louis Stevenson was ill at the time uh, when he dictated the novel, there are certainly some, still some political subtexts and biases that come through, which are commonly found in other uh, Robert Louis Stevenson novels, most notably Kidnapped. Um, I think this film uh, reflects something about Scottish character and biases therein. Uh, the romance between Jack and Flora represents the old alliance between Scotland and France, but note that her name is Flora. And I think the reason why 
uh, Robert Louis Stevenson gave her that name is because he had Jacobite sympathies, which if you've read Kidnapped, you'll be, you'll be very much aware of. Yet the romance between the Anglo-Scottish Farquhar, who is, he declares he's from Scottish stock, but he declares himself as being an Englishman, despite admittedly having a Scottish Gaelic name, which he also admits, is an indicator of the multiple identities of the Scots post-1707. And I can relate to this character personally because I'm in a similar uh, vein. Uh, I was born in Scotland. I spent my formative years in England and I have a Gaelic name. So, the, you know, the, it shows that identity isn't just binary. You're not either Scottish or English. There's different layers. Um, but as I say, um, in contrast to Farquhar, I've been more places than Salisbury. <laughs> I have to say that I've, I've, I've been more places than, than him. Um, Miss Gilchrist is a sort of Scottish lowland aristocrat. She's indicative of the post-1707 Scottish Enlightenment with her travels around Europe and Middle East, which Robert Louis Stevenson could probably identify uh, with uh, himself as he was in Samoa when he died at the age of 44. he had also traveled extensively uh, in the US and the Pacific. So he was very much like Miss Gilchrist. He, he traveled all over the world. I'd say I highly recommend this film if you want something different, you want something funny, you want something romantic. It doesn't focus on the big people, Nelson, Napoleon, uh, you know, any of the big figures. Um, but it's certainly a credit to Robert Louis Stevenson's work and should be seen alongside other film adaptations of his work, such as Treasure Island and Kidnap. Kirstine, thank you very much for that. Um, you're getting rounds of applause all the way around the room and rightly so. I like that this one doesn't take, it too, take itself too seriously. I think that in itself it is a great asset um, and particularly what we're going to talk a lot over the course of this episode about representations and accuracy and, and all the rest of it actually to have something that's light-hearted brings a really important kind of counterpoint to that which is look sometimes these things are just fun i also love that it's a robert louis stevenson adaptation because i mean treasure island oh my god what a novel um he says having loved that as a kid and not realized until years later that's probably where my whole red coat obsession <laughs> came from originally um, that fight scene um, where they, they laid siege to that little wooden hut is just still, I love it. Um, when you were talking about Lord Farquhar, sorry, Major Farquhar, Farquhar, you can see where I, <laughs> mentally I, I'm going with this. In my yeah. head, I just had Lord Farquhar out of yeah. Shrek. And, and I'm starting to wonder whether or not the writers of Shrek were kind of inspired by that when they were putting it together. I've got no idea if that happened or not. Um, but I also like the representation of the officers and that kind of the snipiness and the just the mentalness of some of these characters because calling each other blackguards was absolutely a thing. I've seen notes in archives where people have just kind of scrawled, you are a blackguard over a piece of paper. And that's the context of their letter. Um, and it, it turns into a massive scandal and there are trials and all the rest of it. But yeah. it just kind of taps into something about this period that is yeah. so mental. You wouldn't even believe it was real yeah. if you hadn't kind of spent a bit of time living with it. Um, so I, I really like it. How was it received when it was released? Did people just kind of enjoy 
the mentalness of some of it and the the obvious humor there well i i don't remember the reaction um when it was released i remember originally watching it when it originally came out in 1998 and it was well received and everybody said that they'd they'd enjoyed the performances um but it never seemed to get the same accolade as Scarlet Pimpernel or uh, Sharp or Hornblower. And as I say, it was just a one-off. So it was maybe on a Saturday night and then it was, that was it, you know. But it, but it, is, it is very, very good. And as I say, the writers had the challenge of dealing with a novel that was unfinished. So they had to create some of the story for themselves. And I think they did an excellent job um and an and excellent job with with what they did um it, it does sound like they have sort of bolted bits in doesn't it the, on on top of the the stevenson novel because I, I i don't see him kind of creating this situation where you do a balloon ride from scotland all the way to france <laughs> i just don't see that yeah um yeah i mean i don't know how robert louis stevenson sort of fans or readers would react to what they did to the, the novel. But to be honest, I quite liked it because it was it was funny and it, it sort of lifts it a bit. And um, it, it's just, it's just, I think it's different. And I think the thing that makes it different isn't just, it's funny, it, it focuses on an unknown aspect to the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, until that film, I had no idea that there were prisoner of war camps in Scotland. Um, I didn't have any idea that the French were stuck in prisoner of war camps in Scotland, which is a bit silly because, you know, I, I visited Fort George and I visited castles. I've been to, I went to Edinburgh, when, Edinburgh Castle when I was 14, you know, but it's not something people generally talk about. And here was Robert Louis Stevenson writing about something which I think, you know, in the popular memory at least, I think has largely been forgotten. I mean, I remember having a discussion on Twitter months and months ago with somebody and it turned out that instead of sending Napoleon to St Helena or, you know, they were thinking of sending him up in the Scottish Highlands, which I thought was, was really quite interesting. You know, there were secret papers that said they were thinking of sending him to the Highlands. And I thought, that's actually a crazy idea because of the Old Alliance. That's maybe quite dangerous. But then I think it also reflects, as I say, the, the, the complexity of the Scottish character at that time. There's an old well, an old Gaelic song that was covered by the band Cabrachili called Bonaparte. And it's actually a song in Gaelic, but if you translate it, it's actually a song by uh, a Highland soldier who's part of the British forces, who doesn't want to go and fight Napoleon, not because he likes Napoleon, but because he's thinking, do I have to do this? He doesn't want to go because he he, He's thinking, here we go, war again, you know. It's not because he likes Napoleon. In fact, he detests Napoleon because he says it's Napoleon's fault that he has to leave his family and, and go and fight. So there's certainly elements of the, the Scottish character that pull different ways. And I do know from reading about Scotland and the French Revolution that initially we'd started out thinking it was a very positive thing. And then as it went on and then the terror came, we thought it was awful and we tended to distance ourselves and go, oh, no, no, we, we, we didn't like that at all, you know, no, no, no. Um, so I, I think we, we had a very 
complicated relationship with the revolution from that point of view because we do kind of get a bit romantic about the old alliance and it is to a degree a romance because if you know anything about the old alliance once the scots and the french get actually get together on a battlefield we fight like cat and dog um you know if the battle was lost we we ended up in the medieval times blaming each other for the mistake um so there's a certain romance attached to the old alliance that's there um and I think to a certain degree, uh, Stevenson plugs into this, but he's also realistic. And what I like about this novel is that he talks about all the different layers. So you've got the sort of Franco-Scottish layer, and then you've got the British layer, and it, and it just exposes all the different kind of identities in Scotland. And I think it's quite current. I mean, I'm not going to go into modern politics, but it is quite quite current in terms of all the different aspects of Scottish identity. Let me open it up to the rest of the room then. Uh, Everett, what are your, your thoughts on this one? Well, Zach, you, you stole my thunder a little bit. Oh, um, but uh, to me, uh, I, I any historical fiction that is funny is something that I find interesting because so much of it is kind of in that really high register kind of uh, pretentious almost um you know tone and i think anyone who's really delved into history sees that um you know especially in times of crisis there is kind of a farce aspect um to history and um when you look at it up close that's really obvious and so it's always fun to see that reflected in in uh, historical fiction because I, I don't think you get that aspect uh, as much in historical fiction as maybe we should I, I agree with you. Kirstine, do you want to come back on anything on that or? Yeah, I mean, as I say, that was one of the appealing facts of the film was that it was very, very funny. And that's why it was memorable, because it was funny. I mean, I've watched, I watched all the series of Shark. And although I really, really liked it, I couldn't possibly um, tell you what my favorite bits were because it's quite serious. There are funny bits, but for the most part, it's quite serious. The same with Hornblower. Whereas with this film, um, I distinctly remember walking away from it, remembering all the funny parts. And I think if something's funny, you tend to remember it more than otherwise. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair thing. Um, think about horrible histories, for example. You know, the, the, why is that so successful? Because it takes some serious history and then puts a massive spin on it that just makes you howl. Even now, I went and watched the Horrible Histories movie when it came out, and I'm not ashamed of that fact. I loved it. I hope they do sequels. I know it got a pasting in terms of all kinds of elements, but actually, I just found it great fun. So I, I'm with you, absolutely. Charlie, what are your thoughts? I'm going to, yeah, fly the flag for historical fiction and humor because I think both are incredibly incredibly important I mean the role of historical fiction in sparking interest and that that's the key here so Kirstine watched this and enjoyed it and laughed and enjoyed watching Sharp and enjoyed watching Hornblower and so now she has an interest in all things Napoleonic from that um, as as for remembering bits of sharp, it's only the funny bits of sharp I remember, such as how this is riddle me this. He's been through a battle. He's been beaten 
and stabbed and all of the rest. Yet he can still go back to his tent and uh, make whoopee with a lady. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's you know? absolutely remarkable. I've shared a beautiful picture that I found when I was I was I was googling around this as you were talking, Kirsty, because I hadn't seen it, and um, and it was tricky to find, like you say, because of the different different names and and um, and also being so heavily from East Anglia as I am, I'm, I'm like, I, all I can find is this film called St. Ives. What's this St. Ives film? <laughs> so, but I, fa- I found it and on Wikipedia, there's this beautiful frontispiece artwork um, from, the, from the novel, which I've, I've shared in our chat for you to have a look at. Um, but it's, it's that lovely moment. And this will be the, re- the moment that I remember from you telling us about this story. And that's when he shows the lady that he is interested in, his gun placement. And because if it's anything that all ladies are impressed by, it's a good gun placement. Absolutely. You know, there is, there's no arguing with a well-sighted cannon, is there? No, none um, at all. Um, <laughs> the layers of double entendre that you can pull out <laughs> of that if you were a comedian. Uh, we have friends, not least Andy Dorman, who would tear me to pieces. Uh, <laughs> it's not scathing. the size of the cannon it's the placement <laughs> no comment let us move on very swiftly uh, you're absolutely right though about the comedy within sharp as charlie absolutely loses it um because what does everybody remember from sharp it's sean bean's inimitable yorkshire accent just going bastard the whole way through and the number of memes that get created off of the back of it or him throwing two fingers to the prince of orange is another one that goes down incredibly well so yes the comedy the comedy matters and you know i say that and i've made no bones about this before on this podcast you know i got into this period through sharp so i have a lot of love for it is it historically no of course it's not but it's a piece of entertainment it's not meant to be historically accurate it's meant to engage you um, so anything that achieves that and acts as a vehicle to get people into the period so that they then go and pick up um, something is, is absolutely ideal. The issue then becomes if people reach the end of the credits and then go, OK, now I'm done. Um, but that, that's a whole other conversation about historians and engagement. Matt, do you want to round us off on this one? I've not seen this, so I had to Google. Um, but what a cast, you know. 1990s Jean-Marc Barr, you know, the big blue, the man who couldn't be more chiseled if he'd wanted to, as a Luc Besson fan, you know, these things. But then you've got Jason Isaacs as, 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 as the evil brother. And anything where G- Jason Isaacs is being vaguely evil, you know it's got to be fantastic. Um, so I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna have to dig this up because it looks, it, it, it looks a lot of fun. But I'm, I'm, I'm totally there with the humour. You know, I... So you're thinking you're talking about Sharp? That's how I got into Napoleonic history as well. I'm just thinking of the latest Sharp book. All I can remember is is the sculptor gag from it. I don't really remember much more of the plot. But there's a great gag where they're, talk, they're in the Louvre and yeah, he's talking about is it a Botticelli or something? So, oh yeah, the young young lad we picked up in Portugal. Not a great shot, but what he could do with the chisel. Yeah, you know, it, it's 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 genius. And to be fair, the only memorable bit in in the book really um and you know flashman you know for for all of the problems of the first book it's still very funny and it's through that humor which you know george mcdonald fraser said the things he remembers from war is the laugh and the horror and so that's what he sort of pulled through it 
Um, so yeah, no, that that looks this 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 looks like it's a good shot, good shout, and I, I like it's quite left field. Nice one, Christine. Well, so we've had two belters. Um, we've got another one incoming because probably the one that I got slammed for the most for not uh, including is being covered by Everett. Everett, take this one away. All right, well, um, I'm gonna be talking about The Duelists, um, which is uh, the famous Ridley Scott's first movie. Um, I'll go over the plot very briefly in case any listeners haven't seen it. Um, it opens uh, right um, after Napoleon Bonaparte became first consul of France um, and right before the War of the Second Coalition, uh, 1800. Um, and it opens, uh, a French officer is dueling a civilian. He kill well, he skewers the civilian. We later find out that he is kind of alive, I, I believe is the, the phrase they use. Um, and he gets in trouble for the duel. And so a staff officer is dispatched by the commanding general of the French cavalry in Strasbourg to tell him that he is in trouble for the duel and confined to quarters. Um, in the process of him telling this officer that he's been you know, suspended from duty and confined to quarters for dueling. He offends the officer and they fight a duel. And the duel is inconclusive. And the whole rest of the movie is about the strange relationship that develops between these two men where they keep trying to finish this duel. And it follows them throughout the whole Napoleonic Wars um, as they continue to fight these battles and um, you know, develop this sort of strange um, relationship with one another where they're trying to kill each other. And it's kind of a constant in their lives uh, throughout the ups and downs of, um, of French history in that era. Um, anyway, that's the plot. I've now, I'd now like to launch into my pre-written screed about why I think it's good. So ahem. The Duelist is a good movie. I could go on for hours praising the acting, direction, cinematography, script, etc. But I'd like to focus narrowly on what makes it good historical fiction. When we judge historical films, I find it useful to think about what a film can do that a book cannot. Books are a more efficient way to convey information, but I think a movie can be more effective at communicating a feeling or an impression. This is why I think The Duelists is the best on-screen representation of the Napoleonic era. From discrete details like costumes, locations, and cinematography, to plot elements like the dueling subculture and the uneasy relationships between soldiers and camp followers. Even the themes of the movie, the pursuit of honor, the demands of duty, and the tension between reason and violence. The filmmakers seem to have tapped into the spirit of the age. I sometimes joke that the movie not only depicts the Napoleonic Wars, but it almost feels like it was actually made by people from the Napoleonic era. The characters' behaviors and motivations feel true to the time period, which is a rare achievement in historical fiction. The Duelists gives its audience a brief glimpse into the world of the Grande Armée, the most important institution of the era, no offense to the Royal Navy. I think people walk away from this movie with a better understanding of the culture and psychology of the man who fought for Napoleon. And that's the end. 
Can we just pause for a moment to admire the fact that you've managed to work the second Royal Navy burn of the night into that pitch? Uh, so first you go after Nelson, and then you go after the Royal Navy as a whole. Kate Jameson, who for folks who aren't familiar, is the queen of naval Twitter, or Royal Naval Twitter, is not going to be happy. To, I don't know, actually, know if Kate listens to this show, but if she does, she's not going to be happy with you. Um, but I, I hear you, and um, this was far and away the one that people came back to me on um, in terms of saying you didn't include the duelist the duelists what were you thinking um, and you know what they're right frankly because as you say this kind of taps into culture as much as anything else and I, I, I hear you and I agree with you you know as historians and I read a lot about honor and kind of questions surrounding the jewel there are so many questions that we just don't know the answer to because it's so messy for folks who aren't familiar you're kind of not meant to duel during this period because if you kill somebody in a duel then that's murder and murdering somebody is a bad thing in the army particularly they don't particularly like dueling because it's dueling between officers and if one officer kills another that's not very good in terms of command and control surprise surprise however there's an honor-based issue here as well which means that if you as a man decline the challenge to a duel, you are therefore deemed unmanly. And so you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. If you do duel, then you're breaking military law, and that can result in you being cashiered. If, on the other hand, you reject the summons, then you're not displaying manly character and in theory, there are, and actually in practice, there are situations where kind of their colleagues trumped up charges of unmanly and ungentlemanly conduct and conduct lacking in the character expected of an officer. Why? Because way back along, they didn't accept the challenge for a duel and they've been stigmatized ever since. So it's this really complex world. And to give even a flavor of that is something that you can spend hundreds of pages writing about and still not succeed. And I say that having dived into this period. And so the fact that the film can take that and portray it at the end of this very long winded little diatribe that I've just given you all, it is, is something that I absolutely love. Um, I also have to say it's, it's Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott, just, I love Ridley Scott films. Um, perhaps that says too much about me and my character, but I, I do love Ridley Scott films. Um, I won't go off on a tangent about, you know, his abilities as a, as a director. Um, it's, I, I, having said I love Ridley Scott films, I'm also very trepidatious about this new one about Napoleon that's coming out. And, oh, that could go one of so many ways. Um, there's been a lot of kind of questions about the age of cast members and whether or not that's going to work and who's too young and who's too old. And, you know, so much flack already flying over that. Um, and perhaps that's something that, you know, we might pick up and discuss in just a second. I, I don't have any um, kind of probing questions, really, other than what I, I said to Kirsten, how did people receive this? Because now loads of love for it. I can't remember if it got any kinds of awards. It, was it one of those that it kind of made his name and everybody kind of went ah the guy who did the duelist until he then went and did alien and everybody went and said ah the guy who did alien yeah this is his first his first feature film 
um, and he mostly put it together himself. Um, it's on a shoestring budget, um, which actually I think worked out in his favor because it forced them to do location shooting rather than build sets. And so there's some wonderful, um, you know, whoever was the location scout on this really knew their stuff. There's some really beautiful settings, um, some nice old buildings, and it does not feel like, you know, it feels like it was shot in 1800. It doesn't feel like a modern movie that was shot on a, you know, on some set in California that's painted to look like France. Let me, I mean, there's a, there's a whole question that we could go there about, you know, Ridley, if you're listening, he's not listening, who am I even kidding? Um, but if you're listening, please do that with the Napoleon film, please, I implore you. Okay, shakes of the head around the room. I can't decide if that's because, Zach, you just need to shut up because you don't know what you're talking about or um, just because everyone's going, he ain't listening, mate. You just you just need to get over that. Um, but let's move swiftly on and open it up to the floor. Matt, you were, I'm going to drop you in this. You were, you were shaking your head as I was um, kind of imploring the, you know, do location shooting. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? I, 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 I love the do list. I think it's a great show. It, 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 it's it's a film you can watch with the sound off and know exactly what's going on. The acting in it is so good. You know, Keith Cardone, Harvey Cartel, Albert Finney, the, everybody in it is just perfect. It's it, it's wonderful. And, you know, and it gives us Ridley Scott, you know, who very kindly took time out for making an absolute fortune, making TV commercials to, to, to make this little low budget film that went on to do very well at Cannes. Um, no, no, I, 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 I love it. I... I have the same trepidations about you, about this Napoleon thing with Joaquin um, as Boney and now um, um, Princess Margaret from- Vanessa the, uh, Kirby. Yeah, being Josephine, which seems weird. Anyways, um, no, I, I think I think this is a superb shot. I, you know, it, it, it ex also explains a lot about, you know, um, class, honor, an expectation in you know in the officer class as you as you're saying in in the um in the Napoleon period I I I love it and yeah it's yeah this is this is also David Putnam at the peak of his powers you know he makes this makes Midnight Express and then makes Chariots of Fire you know there's a lot around this film as well which is which is fantastic um but yeah it, you know Sir Ridley on the top of his form you know I I think there's elements of kingdom of heaven that kind of link up with this, that he then just completely overdoes um, in, in the ways of, of the strasses of, 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 of class and expectation and loyalty. Um, but no, it's, this is a brilliant show. And if you know, so many people haven't seen this, they think it starts at alien or blade runner, it, you know, go see this. It's, you know, it's, it's not that long, um, which is rare for a Ridley Scott movie these days. Um, and it's it, no, it's a great shout out. I'd forgotten that you did Kingdom of Heaven. Um, we'll move swiftly on from Kingdom of Heaven before I. I well, that's a discussion for another day. The director's cut's a lot better. I have time yes. for it. Okay, okay, good. We, you and I, need to put our heads together and have a chat about that at some point. Um, Charlie, what, what about you? Um, again, this is one I haven't seen, but I was looking around and googling it as you talking Everett and I have to say 
you've really made me want to watch it. So that's that is all credit to your pitch. It looks absolutely delicious. It looks really, really good. Um, and I was looking up, you know, I always love this kind of nerdy stuff. You know, it was nominated for awards for cinematography and costume design. Um, and the cinematographer won an award from the British Society of Cinematographers for it. So, you know, the look of it, aside from the film it's, itself, is is clearly what's being what's being admired. Um, limits are a good thing on any creative person. Uh, if, you, if you're told you can do whatever you want with uh, however much time you want and however much money you want, you end up with the Irishman. So um, the <laughs> limits, do you like that? Did you? It was terrible, wasn't it? Um, I loved it, but I, I like the comment anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, and to some extent, um, once upon a time in Hollywood, but I loved that. I actually loved that one. But the limits on, on a filmmaker, you know, it's his first crack of the whip. You've only got a certain amount of money. He, it, from what I've, I've read briefly, there was pressure to get the lead signed because you couldn't get any money unless you've got your lead signed, but you also haven't got any money to pay your leads. Um, Harvey Keitel just looks absolutely gorgeous in it. So I'm definitely going to be checking this out. Thank you so much. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. And Kirstine, what about you? Yeah, this is one I haven't seen either, and I'm ashamed to admit it because I have seen people on Twitter rave about it all the time. Um, and um, thanks to Everett's pitch, I really want to see it now because I really enjoyed Barry Lyndon, um, which was one I wanted to watch for ages, but then eventually got round. And um, this seems similar in terms of its quality to, to Barry Lyndon. So... Um, I really look forward to actually seeing this one. Um, there was one question I wanted to ask Everett from the point of view of historical accuracy, dare I mention the phrase, but are there any instances of actual um, ongoing grudges like that within the Napoleonic army? Where there, you know, was this based on actual history? Were there famous ongoing grudges that lasted for, for a long, long time? Well, um, for starters, I, I just as an aside, it's interesting that you bring up uh, Barry Lyndon because uh, this was actually shot with the same techniques uh, that they, they used on Barry Lyndon to give it that sort of painterly look um, and to allow them to shoot with only uh, candlelight indoors. Um, and that's so it's those two movies are visually probably more similar than any other two movies you can find. I mean, it's, it's fun, interesting that you picked up on that not having seen it. Um, and to answer your question, uh, actually, the film, the events of the film are based on real life events. They did change the names of the two, the two duelists. Um, but the story, actually, if anything, the movie underplays it because I believe the real men dueled nearly 30 times. And in the movie, they only duel, I believe, seven times. So if anything, the movie is underselling it. Um, and this was a huge problem in the Grande Armée. It was, a, it was a problem in all of the armies of the Napoleonic Wars, but in particular in the Grande Armée, um, there was, uh, I mean, it was a, a scourge, really. I mean, because, you know, as Zach said, it's, it's not good for business for, to have the officers killing each other. Um, and there was kind of a code of conduct around that, um, you know, no dueling during wartime, uh, no dueling between uh, officers not of equivalent rank. Um, 
but it, it happened. Um, there's a great anecdote. I'm forgetting. I believe it's from Captain Blaze's memoirs. He's one of the one of the most famous memoirists of uh, the Grand Armée. And he has a whole chapter. I believe it's him. He has a whole chapter on dueling. And one of the things he talks about is he says, "Don't ever annoy someone who wears their sword on their back instead of at their side." Because duelists, guys who made a habit of dueling, would get non-standard swords that were a bit longer. And since they were a bit longer, you couldn't wear it at your side or it would drag on the ground. It had to be on your back. So if you see someone with a sword on their back, do not annoy them or insult them because they will challenge you to a duel. Shrewd advice. Shrewd, shrewd advice. Uh, I didn't know that one. And I'm slightly ashamed of that. But yes. (laughs) That's a, that's a, I love little anecdotes like that. Um, so, so thank you for that, Everett. And, and thank you, uh, Kirsteen, for the question. Last but by no means least for this half. And can I just point out, we've been going for an hour and a half already. Um, so, you know, there's a second half still to come, folks. You're going to need to pause this at some point and go and grab yourself a vat of wine, frankly, to get through the second half. Um, last but by no means least, Boney. What have you gone for? Well, you've gone for quite a contender, I have to say. Well, you see, I, I was originally going to go for The Adventures of Gerard, which is the great 1970s adaptation of the Arthur Conan Doyle stories with Eli Wallach as Napoleon, um, because why not? But we are going Napoleon and we're going right back to the beginning of cinema. So about five years ago, It was a wet and cold November Sunday. Um, Jumped on the train that miraculously were running and I headed up to the Royal Festival Hall. So ahead of us was a whole day of silent film. And by whole day, we were watching one movie and the timings were gonna take eight and a half hours, including breaks and and all that. Because Carl Davis and the London Philharmonic were gonna be performing live to the five and a half hour reconstruction of Abel Gantz's epic Napoleon, which premiered in 1927 and was originally about seven hours long. But we've only got five and a half hours of it due to the incredible work of uh, Ken Brownlow, who since he was a kid has been collecting bits of this movie to put it back together again. So the BFI spent a fortune cleaning it up, digitizing it. They figured out where the right color tints were in. Carl Davis was there himself, full orchestra in the Royal Festival Hall. The lights go down and we get to watch the little Corsicans rise to glory. Um, it's, it, it, was, it, was, it was incredible. It was a very long day. Um, and it's, it's interesting as well. If I know lots of people, as we were wandering around, couldn't follow it because silent film has its own language. There's no exposition. You just have brief intertitle cards every once in a while. So there are certain languages in movement and the way people express, which basically stops the Basel expositions of then saying, and now we're in Toulouse or Toulon or wherever. Anyways, what happened was quite simply a transcendent experience. I do not like Napoleon. And at the end of this film, I still didn't like Napoleon. let's just make that clear um but we're gonna get to that because i've got to explain what this is so it's it's three parts and it starts with uh, napoleon as a child (coughs) excuse me um at uh, at military school and 
what what you've got here is you know we've got to play this in the time it's it's the middle 20s um you've got a director who was a stretcher bearer during the war his his first great film was jacuzzi which used the french army in an anti-war film right it's mental so here he is beginning production just seven years after the end of the war with young napoleon in in military school in guns and here basically the myth making begins so act one you have basically possibly the most famous snowball fight ever thrown to film because it's it's the older boys versus the younger boys and napoleon is the general on one side and you can see as the battle's going on the lighting in his eyes is starting to get brighter and brighter as he's figuring things out and he takes command and he starts marshalling his troops and rallying his fellow school children. They try flanking maneuvers. They then start lobbing um, artillery snowballs over the top. And you can see Napoleon getting into it. And it's just the most amazing scene. You, you can watch it on YouTube and it's just, you can see so much of what comes later from that one scene. And it goes on, there's cross-cutting, there's overlays. You have yeah, this weird eye flashing thing that keeps popping up to show his genius at work. Um, and it, it's it's just the most incredible thing. We then jump forward a few. Oh yeah, there's this great scene with him and an eagle on a cannon after he's been beaten up by some older boys, and the eagle's sort of there with him, and he lies across this cannon and falls asleep. Oh, it's amazing. Anyways, we then jump a bit further on, and we end up at the club de club de Corriers. I'm going to murder some French pronunciations in this thing tonight, people. So be be ready for that. Um, where you've got it's rowdy. It's all kicking off. People aren't knowing what's 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 going on. Um, but there you've got over on one side watching the chaos. You've got Danton Robespierre and Marat. And then all of a sudden you have a song being handed around and it's cutting and people are looking and then up stands the man and then the orchestra bursts into Le Marseillais. And you have the first singing of the Marseillais and everybody's cheering and the crowd are going nuts. It's only later that you find out that these are actually all striking Renault workers that they've got on the cheap to be extras in this film. So they've been whipped up with national fury. And you know, to be fair, as national anthems go, Le Marseillais is up there with good ones. Um, you watch Les Bleus when they're about to get beaten by England, hopefully in a, in a, in a few weeks time. Even you get stirred by that. Napoleon turns to Delisle and says, your hymn will save many a cannon. And then we go, we're off. And Napoleon goes off to Corsica. It all goes wrong. The Girondists are falling. He ends up on a boat trying to escape being murdered. And as the sea starts tossing up back home, we're seeing the fall of the Girondists in Paris. It's all kicking off. The storm gets burst. On the horizon, there's a Royal Navy frigate. And there's a young officer with a telescope in, and it cuts and it says, Nelson. And you're like, oh, and Nelson turns to his captain and says, may we have a shot, sir? And he, the captain goes, no, that boat is insignificant. And off Napoleon is being tossed in the waves until he's saved by his brothers. And his life continues. And this is all happening. And it's, to be fair, this is two hours into the movie. And yeah, we've got miles to go. So anyways, he, he goes, he goes back to Paris. We then the whole middle part of the film is him at Toulon, which is quite, which is really quite well done. Cause again, you've got the flashy eye thing 
when um, he's shown a map saying, how would you win Toulon? And it's all animated. So the map starts moving around like dad's army. It's fantastic. And Napoleon's eyes are flashing and he starts gesturing and telling and things. But his men are, are making wine out of mortars. They put all the grapes into the mortars and they're, they're waking wine and they're, they're all slovenly because their officers are terrible. But there he comes and there's cannon exploding around him as the British are shelling. And he stands up and rallies the troops and turns it around. There's the great night attack where they attack um, the Gibraltar Redoubt and they throw the Englishmen into the sea. Now, that was real French soldiers playing French soldiers and they got Royal Navy, uh, sorry, British Army soldiers to play the British Army. The problem is the British guys didn't swim. So they chuck all these guys into the thing and they have to stop filming because they start to drown. So everyone has to pile into the sea and pull these people out. So there's this weird sort of cross cut of these soaked English soldiers back reshooting scenes, but they get thrown into a minute later. It's, it's brilliant. Anyways, that's, you know, that's the end of act two. So act three starts with no Napoleon. You have the murder of Marat, which is all framed like David's painting. Um, it's, you know, you've got, you know, you've got the terror, you've got, Gantz puts his camera right on the guillotine. It's fantastic. Um, it then cuts and you're seeing the lists of the prescribed being made. And then Gantz gives himself the best role in the film, which is Saint-Just, who's, you know, as, as they're making the list, he's got this little notebook. So every time Robespierre calls out a name, he sort of looks in his notebook and just gives a little nod and the name goes on the list and another name comes out. It's, 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 it's mental. Um, and then, of course, you know, they're trying to frame Napoleon. So he gets put in charge of the defense of the city. So you get the whiff of grape shot bit. And it, it also, it's happening, you know, Josephine's husband gets her head, his head chopped off and they end up at a ball to celebrate the dead and there's ghosts. It's weird, but it's amazing because everything looks incredible. Yeah, the, it's, it's, it's just, you know, you're just watching this thing. The score is incredible. And you're, and you're rooting for this guy, you know, and he's, he's quite sad because basically he sort of walks into a room and does this, which is great for a podcast. That's me puffing my chest out, listeners. Um, and there's chaos around him and he brings order to the chaos in every scene that he goes in. It's very cleverly done. Um, so anyways, the, you know, the, 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 you know, the Jacobins fall, Napoleon gets his army and he marries Josephine and the final scenes are him in a carriage on his way to Italy with a line of dispatch riders as he writes his love letters, which he hands out the window and the dispatch rider grabs them and rides off to Paris. And then as he walks over the hill, there's literally an entire army in the passes of the Alps milling around all unordered until he arrives and does the chest thing and they start forming into columns and he sort of looks and then the screen sort of explodes into the famous polyvision finale, which has got three cameras and three projectors just opening up with all these crosscut things. And he marches into Italy. And that is the end of the first of what should have been six films. And it was seven hours long originally, right? Now, what you've got is a lot of movie and, you know, it's, it's interesting to see what this could be. So why is it sort of, for me, the best depiction of the Napoleonic era? Well, it's because it's the making of a man. You know, not only does he give his name to the period, we can't think of the early 19th century, late 18th century without 
trying to figure out what Napoleon's up to. And in this film, what we see is glimpses of the monster he will become. I'm getting that in there, Sam, if you're listening, monster. Um, you know, but at the same time, he's, he's uniting the people to, to flow behind him and to, and to move the nation forward. This is middle 20s France. This is very of the moment with them rebuilding following a devastating war. Yeah, ironically, it's about a man about to take his people into a devastating war that they will take forever to, to recover from. But, you know, it's, you, you, you know, you, by the end of it, you know, you're, you're out of your seat, your, your ass is numb as all get up from all that sitting down, but you're all proud to be French because everybody's singing the Marseillaise and mar marching out. And, oh, man, it's incredible. It's stirring. But, you know, we, we tend to look at the period in terms of, of battles and heroics, and let's face it, sharp. But here we have a film that is specifically about the rise and the effect that this guy has on the people. Because if he hadn't been able to rally his men, the people around him, he never would have become who he became. You know, and I think where it ends, just at the moment where before he becomes the Napoleon we know, before the campaign in Italy, we don't see him become the monster. We see him almost at the peak of his powers, but we don't see what he becomes. And we can't say, oh, what about, what about, what about? You know, so the reason I think this is the greatest Napoleonic films, you know, it, it's, it's made, you know, 1920s film directors all had Napoleon complexes. And Abel Gantz definitely had one of the biggest. You know, Kubrick called the film, and I'm going to paraphrase this slightly, technically brilliant yet crap which basically is my review of Barry Lyndon. Um, but however you look at it, you know, the film just soars. It, it looks incredible. Um, you know, when it opens up into the tip trip finale and you just literally see casts of thousands moving, marching south into Italy, you're like, go for it, mate. You're going to win and you're going to nick all the good stuff down there but you know we're behind you we're going to be singing i remember i think it was tom holland was jumping out of his seat on the other side of the royal festival hall cheering it was amazing and i was watching watching it back the other night and you just it's just amazing and i as we have talked about this quite a bit zach the man should be mentioned in the same phrase you know the same sentence as hitler and stalin as far as i'm ah. concerned right he oh my god <laughs> yes i i do not like the man yeah the the body the body the body count is about equal yeah great general whatever but you have this this i want to say self-contained film it is bloated as i'll get up but yeah it's it's yeah put it this i'm really excited that we get the seven hour version later this year the French have found the extra bits and Netflix have paid for it to be out in 4K. It's going to be great. It's going to literally take you a day to spend time with this horrible human being and cheer him on. Um, yeah, bring, bring, it, bring it on, I say. It's, it's just wonderful. I can sense a little bit of tension in the room. <laughs> just a, a little, little kernel. <laughs> Charlie looks like she's uh, cheering on at the fight. I'm up for the fight. Come on, guys. Jewel! I'm... No, no, Charlie, <laughs> stop. Bad. Um, you hit the nail on the head about this being Napoleon, the good years, in, in my book. Um, I, I think you're quite right that 
we won't delve into the the whole thing of, of is he a Hitler? I personally don't agree that he's a Hitler or a Stalin. I certainly don't like the guy though. Um, I'm here to drive the comments and 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 the and the discussion, mate. That's my my point. <laughs> um so some people would have got very angry listening to you bernie um would, would you like me to publicize your twitter handle so that people can come and speak to you I'm, directly i'm 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 at bernie abroad feel free we've 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 delved into these conversations on twitter with luke before and i'm not going to change my viewpoint i do not like the man uh, nor me nor me but you're quite right that this is absolutely one of those periods and there are um i would say that you know the italian campaigns you can get behind them as well um, when you can kind of go, yeah, go on, man. Um, the look of this film. So for people who perhaps haven't seen it, go Google it, um, first of all, buy it, for heaven's sake. Um, but if you can imagine the Napoleon at the Bridge of Arcole painting by Antoine Jean Gros, um, it's basically uh, a filmed version of that, you know, Napoleon, with the Italian complexion looking, my God, so striking and kind of the full uniform and just looking it. Um, if you ever kind of have looked at those, those early paintings of Napoleon and gone, he had it, you know, put the whole kind of the, the truth, the Fontainebleau paintings of 1814 to one side. In his younger days, he looked it. And this is a kind of a filmed version of that. I agree with you. It looks incredible. Um, as a piece of cinema creation, I mean, I didn't realise it was meant to be the first of six. Um, boy, what were the others going to, you know, if you put it all together, you'd just spend a solid week. Well, well Gantz did make Austerlitz in the 60s. So there's that really weird film of Austerlitz. It's Gantz again. Um, which is which is good that it's all in the fog because he did not have the budget to do <laughs> all the troops again. But yeah, yeah, first or six. So what happened to the others? Uh, this this one flopped. So MG, MGM bought the rights to it, um, and it's to the seven hour version played in Paris and got standing ovations. Uh, Gaumont then cut it down, and then when MGM got their hands on it, they cut it down again. And it didn't make any sense. To be honest, it doesn't make a lot of sense at five and a half hours. There are bits of it where you're just thinking, what, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's a pillow fight in there, right? You've had snowballs. Let's have a pillow fight. You know, it's, 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 it's mental. Um, but yeah, it just, it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't make the money. Um, which is, which is a shame because, uh, you know, Gans's other stuff, um, it, it could have been something, but he would never have had the money to make six films like this. It's, Plus, sound would have come along and that would have really made things interesting. I think that's part of why it kind of works as well, though, right? The fact that you haven't got to worry about dialogue in the tradition, in the sense that we associate dialogue uh, within a film. You, know, you, you represent that in a different way. It kind of works because of that for me. Kirstine, what's, what your, what's your take on this? Yeah, so this is a film I actually own. But ashamedly, it's still in its cellophane upstairs. <laughs> I bought it two years ago um, alongside um, another film or miniseries on Napoleon, which I may mention later for honourable mentions. So it's certainly one that I will now unwrap from its cellophane and sit down and watch. I don't know if I'll 
I'll wait until the Netflix uh, version comes out, but I will certainly give this one a look. Um, I'm, I am slightly, I am, or I was very pro Napoleon a uh, few years ago because I'd been to Paris um, and I stayed with my godparents and we went to the Musée um, uh, of the Army and, and we went to the Invalide and we saw Napoleon's tomb. And of course, I'd read what they'd said about Napoleon and I came away thinking, why did we hate this guy? This guy's great. But of course, they're seeing it from their perspective. Um, and what complicates it as well is that I was brought up in Norfolk and I was very much aware of Admiral Nelson, so I'm getting it from the other side as well. But what I've been doing is I've been revisiting Napoleon um, gradually. Um, so as part of that process, I will certainly have a look at this film. I think it always pays to try and see things from another perspective. As Matt says, he's not Napoleon's biggest fan, but yet he still sat down and watched the film. And I think that's what historians should do. You should watch things that will challenge your opinions, things that will disagree with what you think. Because um, I think that's all part of doing history. Um, so it's certainly something that I, I will be um, looking at as I, as I revisit Napoleon and, and really think about uh, who he really was. Because at the moment, I'm confused at the moment. I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not as pro-Napoleon as I was, but I don't think I will ever like Wellington, but I've always loved Nelson. So I'm, I'm still trying to find sort of where I sit. If I ever do, that is, but it, but it's it's all good just to to see uh, see all these different things and, and and try and come to your own opinion. Even I will acknowledge that Wellington is a very very hard man to like because um, you look at his politics and you look at his social attitudes and his aristocratic nature and you just go, oh really. What is it with you? But, you know, the man was good at his job, which is something equally that you can say about Napoleon, you know, commander. Yeah, he's great. Um, for me, the, and this is an analogy that perhaps you all feel, the, the best analogy I think you can draw about Napoleon is that he's a 19th century Cromwell for me. Um, <laughs> make of that what you will. Um, <laughs> Charlie, not being a fan of Cromwell, uh, perhaps I've just Thumbs influenced down. <laughs> Okay. Charlie, I'm going to come not to you. Not impressed with him. <laughs> I'm going to come to you next. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Boney, uh, for, for telling us about this film. I've not seen it. Uh, I spent some of the time while you were speaking just looking at stills from it. I think that's one of the most wonderful things about silent film is that the stills are so expressive. And you're right, silent film has a language all of its own. It this, this moment in filmmaking, you're still in that part where movie making is experimental art form. It's not become the big, the big business. It's still very much an artistic expression where people are learning how to tell stories. They're, they're learning how to use the equipment and what the limitations of that are. I'll go back and argue that, of course, limits are good, and I include time limits in that because though I'm very interested in this, am I going to sit for nine hours and watch it? No. Uh, but because you are clickbait in human form, Boney, I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to say one thing to you and just get your reaction. Are you ready? 
Francis Ford Coppola. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Mm. <laughs> Depends on which Francis Ford Coppola. Makes what you- a nice bottle of wine. No, but you, he... Have you heard this story about him and Napoleon? Well, he, he, he did a cut of this. Yes. Have you seen got, that? That's, I wondered if you'd seen his yeah, cut yeah. as well. I, I haven't, I haven't seen, I've only seen the, the Brownlow ones. I've seen the three and a half hour and the five and a half hour Brownlows. I haven't seen the Coppola, but it, 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 didn't his brother Carmine do the, the, um, the score for it as well. So there, his there's, father, yeah. Oh, his dad. Yeah. So there's that, that could that could be interesting to go go back to, but um, being yeah, yeah, I think he just sort of jumped on poor old Ken's bandwagon and, and snuck a cut in. Being a purist, well, what what seems interesting about what he did with it and what might offend a purist is it seems that he he sped up the frames per minute so that you could actually get through more of the film in less time. So. I read that and I just imagine all these kind of very jerky little people walking around. Uh, but and it, it's, you know, it's, it's 19, 1926, So the frame rate is slightly fast anyways, mm. to what we, we would be used to. Um, so to do that, to <laughs> it's like watching something, because it doesn't Netflix have that one and a half times speed to get through telly quick. Has anyone actually be- ever pressed that button? You can do it with podcasts as well. I've, I've not done it. Everyone must sound like a chipmunk. Don't do that in history hack. Zach and I will be far too squeaky. If you slow it down, a podcaster sounds drunk, which I've always found amusing. <laughs> See, once or twice I've done this when we've had an, when there's an episode that it's sort of a hundred, uh, sorry, one hour, five minutes. And you just know as a podcaster that either people are going to sit down for an, an odyssey like this, or they're going to give you an hour of their time and then cut. Um, sometimes to try and get it, down under the one hour to get it to one hour and one minute i have sped up um things and you can only <laughs> get away with it i find uh 1.1 pacing anything more than that and it just doesn't work it just doesn't sound natural i just usually cut down our intro because we usually just go on for <laughs> i mean I, I do have a habit of waffling but you know that's something else entirely no yeah, honestly i mean i know <laughs> radical thought there um <laughs> Everett, I'm hoping you've had a little bit of a, a chance to, to take a breather. Yeah. <laughs> well, for starters, I'll just say on the on the movie, I've always had a complicated relationship with this movie because I feel like in many ways, Gauntz was trying to do what I do, 
uh, I feel like he had a very similar approach, which is, you know, how do you, how do you take a larger than life person and put them into this very small, uh, very tawdry box of making them a character in a, in a media presentation? Um, and the answer to that, that, you know, Gaunt's and I, I both stumbled on one of the same answers, which is you need a lot of time um, and you need to try to kind of communicate some scale um, and make, make people see him the way that people at the time saw him. Um, and that can be tricky um, and it can be, you know, you can wind up creating something long-winded and uh, pretentious and bloated if you're not careful. Um, and so that's something I always think about um, is that, you know, just, I feel like I feel a weird kinship with Gaunt's because I feel like we've both struggled with the same questions. And um, sorry, that's to, that's a brilliant way of, of of framing that. That's yeah. Well, don't thank me now. You haven't heard what I'm about to say next. No, 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 no. Go, go for it. I'm ready. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I've set my jaw. To to court controversy. Um, first of all, I will say that um, I try not to think too hard about whether I like or dislike historical figures, and I try to not you know, I try to divorce myself from those types of thoughts and, and look at them on their own terms. Second, and I'll try to be measured here, I don't want to seem like I'm mean or being personal here, but I'll just say that I probably have a different perspective on these things. My ancestors come from France and Ireland, and I was always raised to think of the French as the good guys in this story. And I think, obviously, there's a lot to criticize about Napoleon. I don't think it's unfair to call him a monster. Um, he certainly did a lot of monstrous things. He caused the deaths of a lot of people, uh, including a lot of people directly. Um, he could be cruel to people. Um, I mean, he, you know, there's absolutely loads to criticize there. And I, I don't judge people for finding him to be a distasteful character um, or, and, and, I, and I'm totally fine with people you know, taking the lid off of some of the, the, the bad things he did and the negative aspects of his legacy. But with that said, I would say Ireland, India, Jamaica, what the Russians were doing in Poland. I mean, at, at the Battle of Praga, the, the Russians killed 20,000 Polish civilians in one day. Um, and then you look at the way, the way that uh, Jews, especially other ethnic minorities were treated under the old regime. I think sometimes we'd focus so much on the negative aspects of what the French were doing in this period. And it, it can almost, in an extreme case, it can almost seem like genocide denial on a certain level, because it seems like, you know, we, we focus on all of these negative aspects of Napoleon's regime and, and the French revolutionary regime. And it seems like very few people have a word to say about all the other people who suffered under the old regime powers and the colonial powers of that era. I mean, that's real, real cruelty. Um, you know, talk about the terror. It was the terror every day in Jamaica for centuries. And, you know, so I don't know. It sometimes to me feels a little bit like, you know, you used the soccer metaphor earlier, excuse me, a football metaphor. And it does sometimes feel a little bit like, um, and this, this happens on both sides, people who, who, who uh, admire the French do this too. It can feel like, um, you know, exactly like exactly that, an international soccer rivalry. And so I just, I don't know. Personally, I struggle all the time to try to rise above that. And I would encourage people listening to 
also try to do that and to try to see all perspectives because that's what ultimately leads to a good understanding of the era. That's my screed. I'm done now. <laughs> I think that's very nicely put. Um, and I'll let Matt reply in a second because you know that's that's his right and privilege. But I, I think you tap into something there which is important, which is, and I I say this, uh, you know, the the British were by no means angels during this period and are a long way from angels. And yes, you're right to raise India, you're right to raise slavery, um, the Ancien Regime as a whole. Yes, of course it was in its own way repressive and there's no denying that. And I think it is important that we are quite clear as opposed to rose-tinted. And I think you're right that yes, there is a, a strong element of hubris that comes into this and kind of nationalistic myth that does end up being unhelpful on both sides. And, you know, it can, you know, taint the conversation and, and ends up being a problem. And I will stop there and let Matt come in. Oh, I, 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 I don't argue with that at all, really. You know, it's, 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 a, it, yeah, to, to, to the victor of the history, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the, 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 pop, the popular looking back, you know, having been fortunate to, to come into it from a, you know, through a writer who would get writer's block and throw on a bunch of Frenchmen to kill to get the book moving again. That's how I came to the period. Um, but when you delve into it, that's when it becomes this fascinating thing that we, we, we all enjoy. Almost as exciting as talking about typhoons over Normandy. Um, but there you go, drop it in, everybody do a shot. Um, but no, I, I, I completely, completely with ever. I think the, that broader context of the time, it, it, it feels like a lot of it's this weird contest to see who can do the most evil things to the most people for the longest period of time. Winner of that is the British um, who managed to do it for, you know, three, essentially three centuries. Um, but, you know, I, I, when, when we focus down to personality and, and persons, you, there's, I think there was opportunities for Dero Boney, my namesake, to, to take different courses. Personally, it's the Egypt thing, which makes a man who had such love and devotion for his troops and he was so happy to just dump them and leg it. Granted, you know, it meant he could fight another day, but that, that tarnishes it. But no, Everett's completely right. There's, there's, more, there's more color to the picture. Um, and we, we, we definitely need to have our head up and look all the way around. That ended up being uh, surprisingly more harmonious, certainly more harmonious than I was anticipating. I thought we might have our first Napoleonist buster. Uh, it's only taken us 130 odd episodes to, to almost get there, but we averted it. Um, I'm going to very quickly go around the room, and I say very quickly because we're nearly at the two hour mark uh, for this half, uh, and ask for your honourable mentions, um, just to give people a flavour of what's to come. So I will be pitching uh, Master and Commander. Marcus Cribb will be turn, returning with his sharp fanboy uh, act and um, emphasizing the, the joys of the sharp series. Josh Proven is doing the 1969 production, I believe, of War and Peace, which I gather is much better than the 2016 version starring, um, what's her name? Lily... Lily, what's her face? James. Lily James. Lily James, thank you. Um, and Tom Fournier will be joining me to talk about the 1970 production Waterloo. Um, so those are already sort of in the pipeline and incoming in part two, which will happen in 
a few minutes time for listeners going around the room though if you couldn't have yours what would your honorable mentions be charlie let's come to you first Okay, I'm going to pick one that wasn't in the room because I did not even think of this as a Napoleonic film. It's a beautiful exploration of uh, the Russian army at the time of the French invasion and it's Woody Allen's love and death. It's a send up of all those big baggy Russian novels. It's hilarious. Uh, Enjoy. Okay, short and sweet. Uh, Boney, let's come to you next. I'm going Captain Horatio, Hornblower, R.N., Raoul Welsh, Gregory Peck, Virginia Mayo. Fantastic sets, like just the most amazing sets ever. Um, it's, you know, it, it's not the Hornblower that we, 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 come, we come to love, um, but we kind of know who Gregory Peck is and what he was like. So it makes it a little, little bit better. Um, but no, I, I, I adore it. It's fantastic. It's got everybody. You know, Christopher Lee shows up as a Spaniard. You know, what more do you want? Kirsteen? Yeah, so my, my uh, honourable mention is the sort of TV serial stroke film of Napoleon by Christian Clavier. And the reason why I've suggested this is because, like me, if you're not really into the period or don't know that much about Napoleon, it's actually a really good film to kind of introduce you to the man and his actions, activities. And what I was really impressed with was how much they actually cover. Um, And so, so many ways I learned more from that than I did a a standard documentary on the subject. Um, So I really, really enjoyed it. So if there are anybody listening who's like me, not necessarily an expert on Napoleon, but once a taster of maybe what the man was like, um, I can certainly recommend that film. I certainly enjoyed it. And Everett? Okay, um, my honorable mention would be uh, a film called The Emperor's New Clothes, which I don't think got a very wide release. It's from 2001. Ian Holm plays Napoleon. And basically um, it starts out with Napoleon on St. Helena, and there's a plot to replace him with a body double and bring the real Napoleon back to France for a, another go around. And uh, it, it works. They put the body double in. Napoleon sneaks onto a ship and he arrives in France and find out, finds out that the body double has died in his absence. And the whole world is mourning the death of the emperor. And so no one believes that, that he's Napoleon. And so he kind of wanders around France of the restoration, kind of trying to make sense of what his life has become and what his legacy is. It's a a quirky movie. It's a bit of a weird movie, but I felt like the filmmakers kind of understood his character and Ian Holm is a fun actor. It's a good movie. This is the one that ends with the visit to the lunatic asylum, is it? Are we thinking the same one? Spoilers, dude. Years since I saw it. Can't tell the ending of the movie straight away. That's cool. you, you wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't know how it ends from that, but there is a scene in a lunatic asylum. Um, are we thinking of the same one? I think that's the same one. I okay. I, I I saw it when it came out and haven't seen it since. So okay, um, folks, I haven't given away the ending there. All you know <laughs> there is that there's a scene in the lunatic asylum. Don't come at me. Um, I'm unsurprised that nobody has mentioned what I would class as a dishonorable mention which is Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, 
which um, is <laughs> it's all the trash that you would expect it to be, but it's fundamental redeeming quality is that Matt Smith stars in it and is absolutely hilarious. Um, it's, it's appalling, but it's compelling viewing precisely because it's appalling um, and, and Matt Smith makes me howl throughout it. And I have looks of utter disgust from the filmies in the room that Charlie looks as though she wishes to disown me. From hey, no, I'm not making family. a value judgment on that. It sounds great. <laughs> sounds great. This has been just part one for you guys, part for you listeners. Part two is incoming in a few seconds time, but I'm just going to say at this point, Everett, Charlie, Kirstine and Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for sticking with it in a very long session. It's been an absolute joy having you on. Um, and we'll see what Twitter says, because Twitter is, of course, the, the forum by which we resolve all discussions in a calm and you know, collected and thought-provoking manner. But thank you, this has been an absolute joy. As this is an extended double episode, you are going to want to take advantage of a slight pause, a little interlude, if you will, the interval through which you can go and get yourself an ice cream if for some reason you're listening to this in the summer, or more likely get yourself a cup of tea or a glass of wine or whatever it might be that takes your fancy. If you're coming back later, remember that there are time markers outlined at the start of the episode so that you can find your way back very easily. I know this is a very long one, and I've tried to make it a little bit easier to navigate around. Whilst I've got your attention, I just want to make you aware of little things that you can do to support the show. Yes, I know I usually leave this to the end of an episode so that you don't have to listen to it, but it doesn't necessarily have to involve digging into your pockets. There are things that you as the 1,000 plus people who listen to this show could do right now that would make a colossal difference and would take literally seconds of your time. Hit the like button, whether it's on Twitter, on Facebook, on the platform through which you are listening to this show. Hit the share button, the subscribe button, little things that allow you to be able to find your way back and also spread the word. You've got thoughts on these things, of course you have, that's why I push these con this content out to you. So leave a comment wherever the mood takes you. Leave a review if you're particularly enjoying this and tell friends. Come join the conversation on Twitter. You can find me at ZWhiteHistory. Let me put it to you this way. If all 1,000 plus listeners were to hit the like button on Twitter on the tweet relating to this episode, it would do the equivalent of trending. That's how big an impact your input would have. So please do just take a moment to do what you can to help push the show onto a wider platform. Of course, some folks are willing to go even further than that, uh, so you can make one-off tips via Ko-fi. Check out the description, in there you'll find a link, and the money goes directly through a PayPal to support the show. Or you can become a regular supporter via Patreon. I know that both of these things are not for a lot of people, totally get that, but some details for you. Rates start at £1 a month, Go up to 3, 7, 14 and 25, depending on which tier takes your fancy. And each tier has different perks. All things are cumulative. Starts off with discount codes and access to the Napoleonicist Discord server, where there's a whole community having a little conversation about things related to the Napoleonic era. Through to shout-outs, voting rights on themed months, requesting episodes on a particular topic of your choice, and one-to-one -one chats with me. So there are lots of different things that you get for your money. I totally get that that may not appeal, 
But to my Patreon supporters and those who donate via Ko-fi, thank you, because it's the only way that I can afford now to invest the time to keep making these shows. The hours of planning, researching, recording and editing that go into a regular episode, never mind a monstrosity like this, just mean that that support is vital to keeping the show going. Begging letter officially over, you'll be relieved to hear. Let's get back into the action. But whether you're liking, subscribing, sharing, reviewing, tipping or supporting, thank you. It means a huge amount. As ever, Patreon supporters in the mentioned dispatches tiers and above, you will get your shout out at the end of the show. Enjoy. Hello, folks. Welcome back to part two. What for you has been just a matter of seconds whilst you've had to bore through my little begging letter is for us the matter of a few days. It's another evening. It's another round of this in what is effectively a double episode on the greatest Napoleonic on-screen depiction. And I have a fresh cast joining me. And it's a great cast that we have, as befits a discussion of greatest film slash on-screen depiction of the period. Joining me are Tom Fournier, the master of the History Symposium. If folks follow him on Twitter, then you will know that Tom has a great pedigree within the reenacting community and regularly posts a mixture of great reenacting memories and some lovely scenescapes from his native Canada. Tom, welcome to the Napoleonicist for the first time. How are you doing? Good, very good. It's exciting to be here. I listen to your podcast all the time, so this is going to be kind of strange hearing myself when I'm up for a morning walk. <laughs> and we also have Josh Proven. Josh is just part of the furniture, frankly. Um, I, I did talk about giving him a chair and naming it after him. Um, though not a chair that I would sit on because my intention is not to sit on Josh. Josh, Master of Adventures in Historyland, all-round nice guy, author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, as I've said very many times on this show by now, but I make no apologies for publicising your work again. How are you doing, my friend? Uh, what the heck was that? Was that Russian? That was Russian. That was Russian, but yes, thank you, first of all, for the very many plugs and for the good wishes. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Good, I'm glad. Although the trouble with you speaking Russian on this show is that you could be calling me a cretin and I would have no clue what you've just said. So I'll assume you were nice to me. Would would I do that to you, Zach? And also, I mean, I'm flattered that you think I have that linguistic ability, but no. (laughs) Well, you perhaps wouldn't call me a cretin, but my final guest perhaps would. We are joined by Marcus Cribb, who folks will know as being a regular Napoleonic commentator on Twitter. He's featured on the Napoleon Assist a few times before. Marcus, how are you doing, my friend? Long time no see. Well. Just a few times on the Napoleon Assist. Um, yeah, well, I'm not sure if the last time I was on, I was hosting for the Revolutionary Napoleonic War Graves charity. Um, been a little while. How is everyone? Great to be back. It's, it's good to see you again, although I should say that we can't actually see Marcus because his Wi-Fi is still apocalyptically bad. And um, in fact, he's just tried to rectify this and just has appeared in a sort of fuzzy haze on his screen. Um, but we will continue with the same format as last time. Each guest gets five minutes-ish. I'm not getting the stopwatch out. And then we will go around the room with questions. But in a break with tradition, I am going to make a pitch as well 
So Josh's mouth is agog at this. Um, he has an Amdram award incoming, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, we'll see how that one goes down um, and see how the uh, how my guests enjoy turning the tables on me when it comes to awkward questions. But we will save my contribution for a little further down the line and we will begin with Tom. Tom, you're going for an absolute classic in the category of on-screen depictions. What are you plumping for? I'm going to talk about Waterloo, the movie. I believe that that was from 1970. So uh, to help the audience understand my position on this movie, uh, I need to talk a little bit about how I first came to view it. Uh, I began reenacting about 20 years ago, portraying a British private in the 41st Regiment in Canada during the War of 1812, which also falls into the Napoleonic era. When I started reenacting and, and folks would gather after hours and share stories and experiences, something that constantly came up were the trips a number of the longtime reenactors had made to participate in the big Waterloo reenactments of 1990 and 1995. I decided I needed to learn more about the Battle of Waterloo and a starting point for me was the movie. As time went on, I began to read much more on the battle and my level of understanding grew. Furthermore, I had the wonderful opportunity to be on the field for the 2015 reenactment and had the experience of being in a square facing cavalry and then coming face to face firing on the French infantry on the first night and then being in the replica Hougoumont structure and being part of its defense the second night. 2015 was my first time physically on the battlefield and my ability to explore and understand was limited due to the responsibilities I had there. But I resolved to return and study it in detail and had a wonderful opportunity to do so in 2018 as part of a tour with Campaigns and Culture where myself and uh, a regular listener, John Haynes, were hosted by Robert Pocock and Gareth Glover for a five-day tour and study of the Waterloo campaign. We stayed in the village of Waterloo and I'd get up early every morning and go walk the battlefield. Since that time, I've continued to learn about the battle, well, quite often on this podcast. And I was curious to see in a viewing this past weekend how the movie would stand up to my own personal experiences, observations, and further learnings. Movies and, and TV series often make sacrifices with history in the interest of entertainment and expediency. But I found my recent viewing of Waterloo, it's still a pretty good facsimile of the actual events. As Napoleon surveys the Allied Army's position, you can pick out key features like La Haas Saint and Hougoumont, just where they ought to be. Generally, the key moments or phases of the battles are covered in a proper sequence. As soldiers march into action, you can feel their anxiety and soon their terror and pain. The uniforms and settings are fairly good representations of how things may have appeared over 200 years ago. And above all, the most striking part of the movie to me was the scale of the production, the sheer number of soldiers and horses involved. As you watch and follow cavalry charges, you can almost feel the ground reverberating with the hoofbeats. The aerial views of the cavalry trying to work around the infantry squares are also incredible. In terms of shortcomings, I do appreciate that the Prussians are given credit for their role in deciding the outcome, but I wish we might have seen a better representation of the threat they represented through the fighting in Placenau in the French rear. It would also have been nice to see more recognition of the different nations and their contributions in the Allied forces defending the ridge under Wellington's command. 
And at times I was caught wondering, does the movie perpetuate many of the myths associated with the Battle of Waterloo? Or was the movie a key factor in creating folklore and myths? Overall, uh, for having the right texture in terms of the look and feel, and for following the history pretty faithfully, I would rank Waterloo the best of the options that, that we had to choose from. Thank you, Tom. You're getting approving nods around the room, and I'm mm -hmm. not surprised. Um, I, I feel you. If, if I wasn't pitching tonight, you'd be getting my vote, I'm afraid. And I, I, that's going to annoy my other guests, but it's, it's just true. In that we Quite haven't frankly. pitched yet. Perhaps a little annoying, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> you won't hold it against me, let's be honest. Um, yeah, I, I like Waterloo. There's, there's a lot to like. The scale of a production like that. This is an era before CGI. I just want to pause for a moment and make folks aware of what went into producing this. So they hired people from, I believe, the Russian army yep. to act as doubles. Um, yeah. and Soviet, Soviet Red Army, thousands. To act as the, the, the troops that you see in the film. So when you are seeing these ranks and ranks representing um, Derlon's corps as it assaults uh, the Allied Ridge, those are real people. Ditto, you know, the horses in, in those incredible cavalry charges and so on. The landscaping that went into this, they basically dug up a huge chunk of, I believe it was Ukrainian countryside, and reshaped it, planted trees, just completely re-engineered the landscape to give a much better representation of the field. And yes, if you want to peer at the background, then you can notice that there are mountains far off in the distance, which if you've ever been to Waterloo, you will know there is not a mountain in sight, um, only a monstrosity of um, the Lion's Mound. But we, we won't uh, dwell on my cynicism when it comes to the Lion Mound. We will move swiftly on. The cavalry charges. I mean, by the time they finish charging, they are probably at Charleroi. In all reality, they charge for that long. And there is that sort of very odd fairground ride um, style music that they do sort of partway through. And you do, you do have sort of these echoes or, or is it sort of predecessors of sort of, oh, what a lovely war in terms of the sort of oddity of the whole thing. Um, and I agree with you on the Prussian element. Um, there needed to be far more on the Prussians. I don't know what the answer is to your question about whether or not it creates the myths or just perpetuates them. I suspect it's sort of a bit of both. You know, yeah. they, they have picked up on the traditional tropes and then because people can watch that film quite easily and understand it, then it perpetuates them by, by doing so. But it's a really nice pitch. I'm trying to think of an awkward question and I don't actually have one. I just agree with you. as Because uh, there is this point, right? That you've got to find a balance between entertainment and reality. And I think ultimately Waterloo, Waterloo does as good a job as any film can. Yeah, and you know, to, for the purists, you know, we have them in, in reenacting, you know, we have a nickname for them, the, the stitch counters, you know, like, uh, oh, the, the facings on that uniform isn't right, or that's not the right pattern of lace, or, or they, they got the wrong muskets, you know, it's, it's either hard to see or they've done a really good job, you know, being good enough that, that it, it is a, a good re reproduction. So, 
It is. I mean, they do fall into that classic Hollywood trap of every cannonball is an explosion of epic proportions. The amount of petrol they've poured into those explosions is substantial. But as you say, this is just what people do, right? I mean, if people, I often rant about the, um, the Vanity Fair depiction of Waterloo, which did not impress me, not least because everybody went, oh, we've put so much effort into making it exactly like it was. And I looked at it and just went, no, I'm sorry, you really haven't. But I don't even hold that against it. Um, like, like we say, you know, this is about entertainment as much as anything else. And I think it works. I'm going to open it's a, it up. It's a, it's a great piece of entertainment. And it's probably one of the most popular depictions of uh, Waterloo. It's, you know, I, oh God, blimey. Thinking back to, was it last year, you know, um, Christopher Plummer who plays Wellington's death. And along with Zach and Josh, I kind of organised the, the watch along. And I think we did it for quarter past seven in the UK and we're tweeting along with it with our lovely community on Twitter. And it was so enjoyable, you know, and, you know, my other half, she just about sat through it and it wasn't her favourite uh, film uh, compared to um, two of the others in this pitch, but it is good. And you do get that kind of, you get some of the, the Duchess of Richmond's ball, you get some of the background, you get some of the, the costumes and the lavishness that Vanity Fair obviously wants to focus more on and the Duchess Richmond's Ball and the 7,000 people who happened to be there because everybody was there uh, in pretty much all of Europe or Crossroad through that one coach house, apparently. Um, but it's brilliant and you get, you, Christopher Plummer brings so much to the role. Rod Steiger is Napoleon. Yes. Um, yeah. there's, there's, there's all sorts of different depictions of Napoleon, but Rod Steiger is Napoleon. And, um, you know, the old guard has fallen and the, the long boom slash helicopter coming in out of nowhere as his face falls is brilliant. And, okay, bias coming in, if at that moment and then some weird Zulu rank style volley fire then takes place, which would probably just blow the shackles off everyone else. If you don't cheer then as um, probably an Anglophile um, at that moment in time, it feels wrong. I cheer every time. You know, now, Maitland, now's your time. Right, brilliant. I've watched that clip on YouTube or I've got the downloaded version on my iPad so many times. It's ridiculous. And that's the one bit. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece of entertainment. I love the Wellington depictions, shockingly, um, where they've, they've taken some of the quotes that weren't at Waterloo. They're from the peninsula. They're from after Waterloo. They're from earlier in his life and crowbarred them in because apparently they were having problems with the script writing. And it, it just works. And if it's one of those things, if it gets people interested in Napoleonic history, does it need to be, you know, 110% accurate? Does it need to be, you know, please every stitch counter, as Tom says? Possibly not. You know, sometimes we, we want an entertainment, you know, it's, it's cinema. I think it's, it's a great film. It really is. There's, yeah, it's got some flaws, but it's Hollywood, it, but it's, it's up there. It's just one of the greatest films of all time. So, what, Marcus, we, are you pitching for Waterloo this evening? I, I would have done if I had a choice, but I think... <laughs> so I had a funny thought watching it the, the, on the weekend, and it was at the end, the, the last stand of the old guard where they're in square, and they, they kind of unmask the, the battery of, of guns behind the, the cavalry. And I thought, you know, as, uh, as they're negotiating with them or asking them to surrender... What if they didn't understand English? 
uh, all that slaughter for <laughs> assuming everyone could follow along in English. <laughs> the other thing that I do particularly like is the the sort of attention to the detail of paintings. So, and I'm thinking particularly here of the Lady Butler. Mm -hmm. Um, charge of the sorry, is it Lady Butler who did charge mm -hmm. of the Scots? Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. Yes, thank you, Scotland Forever. Um, and they turned that painting into a film scene. And that was one God, of their aims, it and it just works. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? They go, the, you know, everyone behind the camera went, We wanted to make Lady Butler Scotland Forever come alive, and hedge you get a long, long thing, and they slow motion it so that just forward on in slow motion and slow music, you get that painting. A nice, done it in a lot more films. A, a nice touch that they do with that film actually is um, the music you hear is the Scots Grace Charge is the music of one of the waltzes at the Duchess of Richmond's ball. And is that, that is that meant what it to, is? Exactly. That's meant to connect to poignancy there. Yeah. Ah, I take it back about the weird fairground music then. I never knew that. That was what I was talking about. It all just mm -hmm. kind of seems so sort of elongated and like you're on one of those horse merry-go-round things. But, but, but I thought that was like the, when the aerial view of the cavalry streaming around the squares and that music started playing, I, I took that to be an ironic treatment. You, you know, that it's this, it's this perverse... Mm -hmm you know, idea of life imitating art, like it looked like a waltz, but it's mm. a, a waltz of, of death, you, mm. you know, so. The ballet de guerre. Mm. Josh, to... we haven't let you get a word in edgeways, really. So let me get your I mean, takes on Waterloo. I, I agree. It's, it's, a, it's a really great movie. It was one of my favorite movies when I was little. Um, one of the reasons why I'm in, I love history now is, is Waterloo and watching Christopher Plummer be Wellington and uh, the Highlanders marching over the crest and stuff like that. Uh, I, I loved researching a little of how it was made for a blog post I did. Um, and uh, you picked up most of the things I, I mentioned in that. The, the, it, was, it was a collaboration between Dino de uh, uh, Laurentiis, I believe, and Sergei Bondachak. Um, Laurentis had done the American War and Peace, and Bondarchuk, spoiler alert, did the Russian War and Peace, and they came together to make Waterloo, um, which I may touch on later. But uh, the also the soundtrack actually, if anybody has seen the American War and Peace with uh, Henry Fonda, Audrey Hepburn, and um, Mel Ferrer, then the soundtrack is like proto-Waterloo. It's fascinating. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, I, I think what we've basically established is that we're all Waterloo fans. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a, good, it's a good war movie. It does what it's supposed to do. Okay, so rather than be awkward, I, I think we're all quietly agreeing with you here, Tom. Um, let's see how, having all agreed with you, we now find a way to undo that that cordiality um with our other pitches and i'm going to go to josh because you were talking about bondachuk mm. i probably ruined the pronunciation there but take it away okay well um of all the excellent film choices you'll hear in this series 
whether it is the engrossing and atmospheric chase of Master and Commander, the swashbuckling fun of Sharp, the romance of the story of Lady Hamilton, or the set-piece battles of Waterloo. I do not exaggerate when I tell you that every single one of them, in my opinion, with the possible exception of the 1921 Napoleon and the Duelists, pale into comparison to the romance, drama, action, opulence, and scale of said guy Bondarchuk's Voynya Emir, known better in English circles as the greatest adaptation of Count Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, and my choice as the greatest depiction of the Napoleonic Wars on film. Segmented into four parts, clocking out at 431 minutes long, released between 1966 and 1967, receiving multiple international and Russian awards, and utilizing in the main battle scene up to 15,000 extras, drawn mostly from the Russian army, this must have been a once-in-a-lifetime cinematic experience to see when it premiered. It is a movie that is almost guaranteed to fire a passion for history and literature. It was conceived in 1959 when King Vidor's three-hour Hollywood War and Peace starring Audrey Hepburn, Henry Fonda and Mel Ferrer wounded Soviet pride by staging a lavish epic spectacle that showed over 30 million viewers Russia's national epic in glittering color. With proud Russians clamoring for a response, the Ministry of Culture approached 41-year-old Sergei Bondarchuk to make Russia's cinematic counter-strike. As a point of interest, listeners might be amused to know, as I mentioned before, that Dino De Laurentiis produced the American War and Peace, and he set out to make Waterloo. He immediately wanted to work with Bondarchuk when he did so, and this will be especially evident, as I said, to those who have seen both, because there are multiple themes that are revisited, the battle, there are certain stylistic elements in the battles, and it's, it's fascinating if you watch them both, actually. Um, but after having watched every War and Peace adaptation, except the 1915 one, because I am that cool, I can say absolutely that not only is the 1960s one the superior one, but weirdly, and I was surprised to find this, and yet not, that Waterloo is actually Natasha's Ball and Borodino rolled into one with new characters and an almost identical score to the American War and Peace. But enough of the motives and comparisons to his successes. You can, you can ask me questions about them later if you want. Um, because by any definition, it met the standards set by the 1920s Napoleon and remains the level to which Napoleonic cinema must measure itself. In the pantheon of War and Peace adaptations, this takes first prize. Bondarchuk's character studies are some of the most enjoyable things about this, and they are masterful. There is very little exposition or backstory to slow things down. Despite the fact it's an epic and that the drama is forceful and magnified to support the scale, there is a quietness and a subtlety to each performance. At this time, every child in Russian schools had to read War and Peace, and it remains one of the most famous works of literature in the world. Therefore, Bondarchuk could assume that the majority of his audience could understand his nuances without much effort. The themes, therefore, of life and the and the per and purpose are, are there as the characters search uh, for where they fit into the grand march of history. 
the, the action is fitting in tone to the book. One of the interesting things about Waterloo is that it is by um, definition an anti-war film almost, and so is War and Peace, and so was the novel. Um, the Tolstoy who fought, fought in the Crimean War found his experience greatly disillusioning. And the battle scenes are giant and undoubtedly spectacular. Nobody could stage a 19th century battle or ball like old Bondes could. They are never glorious. Borodino is especially horrific as a, as a battle scene. And even though there are moments of gallantry and courage, each battle is depicted as a grinding, confusing and terrible ordeal for each of the characters. And like I say, as all good war films should essentially have an anti-war subtext, here again we find a reason why they have chosen this film. The scenes at peace are no less powerful, and they sharply juxtapose the battles, and they are no less detailed either. Um, they are in sympathy with the novel in this. Everybody is searching for meaning, trying to understand their place in life, their mortality, and their purpose when death is the ultimate result of everything. The theatricality of the drama, therefore, and the weight of it is at first seemingly over the top at times, but not when the source material is considered. War and Peace is a novel where emotions bubble very close to the surface. Cinematically speaking, the film is just downright impressive. Everything you see in Waterloo was done first for War and Peace. Um, Bondarchuk used almost every technique known to filmmaking at the time and innovated as he went. Those helicopter shots, they're in War and Peace. Um, and it's just epic. Uh, the entire thing in scale and everything, overblown, some might say, while at other times it is quiet and almost arty, which is quite surprising, which I found quite surprising. Um, and this sort of surprising element of sometimes jarring use of shots and techniques actually helped tell the story. And the score is perhaps only a few trumpet couplets away from being perfect. Uh, Lyudmila Savelyeva's Natasha is, is lovely, a naive ball of life and energy whose transformation by the end is nothing less than extraordinary and whose dancing and silent mime are everything you'd expect from a graduate of the Vagnova school. Her performance in the role every actress apparently wants to play here is not, is not thought of as the greatest portrayal, but it is certainly the least irritating that I've seen. And she carries the complex character with surprising aplomb. Uh, Bondard Shakespeare, he played this role himself. <laughs> um, must have been a difficult casting call. Um, he, but he does it well. He, he's silent, he's compassionate, he's intellectual. He's, he's a simpleton secreting a, a high intelligence and a desperation to find purpose. Above all, he is the driving force of the movie carrying the narrative forward on his rather broad shoulders, it has to be said, skipping from cause to cause and ideal to ideal before successfully finding his own meaning of life. Spoiler alert. Prince Andre is the heroic lead, likewise, but likewise searching, but he seeks fame and glory and is ultimately a central pivot of the story, stoically played by in, with invincible reserve and gallantry, not... Uh, unreminiscent of how Christopher Plummer did Wellington by uh, Vyacheslav Tikhonov. Um, few have met, bettered his portrayal. His part is at first glance the simplest, but actually it is one of the most complex. He's not just a handsome prince in figure-hugging breeches, though many of my female friends are quite happy to see him dance, 
Prince Andre takes more ups and downs than the other, and is, uh, like many of the others, a lost soul who seems to have everything. Faced with death in 1805, he rejects glory for love. Betrayed in love, he returns to a pursuit of glory, secretly hoping for the death he escaped at Austerlitz. In terms of look and atmosphere, I loved the costumes and sets. It's true that the armies are made up of simplistic troop types, but how many adaptations of any book take the, same, take the time to observe changes in uniform pattern over a period of 20 years? And while there are elements of the civilian's dress which are out of place, the world that was created for this movie is absorbing and believable. It is not accurate by any means, but then again, the novel isn't either. But it is to some degree authentic, as all good fiction should be. My friends, this film is unique in its achievement in movie history and is probably never to be repeated. Its success for a behemoth of its size is likewise almost unparalleled with audiences and critics to this day citing it as one of the best epics ever made. As I wind up, I will bring you to the wide mirrored fuchsia and ivory stage of the 41st Academy Awards ceremony held at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, Los Angeles on the 14th of April, 1969, which was opened with by names like Ingrid Bergman, Jane Fonda, Natalie Wood, Frank Sinatra, Bert Lancaster, and Sidney Poitier, who sadly passed away last week. Here in the category of best foreign film, War and Peace met its greatest compliment as the Soviet movie star who played Natasha, uh, Natasha Rostova, Ludmila Savalieva, rose to accept the award for best foreign language film from Jane Fonda and Natalie Wood. The first film from the Soviet Republic to receive Hollywood's highest acknowledgement. In finishing, I will turn to Roger Ebert's review of June 1969, when he said, War and Peace is the definitive epic of all time. Perhaps the greatest of the epics will be one of the last, bringing the epic form to its ultimate statement and at the same time supplying the epitaph. Such a film can be made only once in our time. Spasiba, Zach. That was impressive. Thank you for that, Josh. Um, wow. Uh, there's a lot of love for this one in in the wider community. The the scathing comments that I got when I posted the 2016 <laughs> Lily James variation. Oh dear. Um, the, mm -hmm. People were not happy about that. Mm. Some serious dummies were spat out <laughs> in response to me posting that picture. I had no idea it was so badly received. Um, but I mean, you I, kind I, of I, I outlined guess, why. I mean, like I say, I've seen, I have seen them all. It's not as bad as people say. It's just it can't really come up to the standard of the one everybody gave you gave you grief for. Mm. Um, I've got two questions really. One is more a sort of philosophical question more than anything else. Tolstoy's War and Peace is obviously, you know, the book. It's a doorstop of a book. In some respects, does that make it easier or does it make it harder? Because you've got something that is so detailed and tries so hard to give you a window on such a complex kind of sequence of events. It's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because there's so much there that you therefore inevitably have to cut in order to turn book into film. But at the same time, when you've got that level of detail, you've got a much clearer sense of what the author was trying to portray. 
but that's a double-edged sword because you might not want to be might not want to portray the world in quite the way that the original author did which again is then going to irritate the literary purists among us so what are your thoughts on that is it easier is it harder having Tolstoy kind of as this looming presence in the background hmm I, I I think that most directors find it a bit of both um there are some directors like the the chap who did the 2016 one who basically wanted to completely forget practically the a lot of what Tolstoy did and try and purely make a, a sort of a visual um entertainment um there is the 1950s one that was done in America um which sparked the the Soviets to make war and, this war and peace um which is the which is Hollywoodized very strongly Hollywoodized into a into a three-act um package which is very sort of serenely done but again it sacrificed a great deal of the book and there's the Soviet one which pretty much is the closest you can come to a visual representation of the book um and I think that it, it, it entirely depends on the director. Bondarchuk was happy to take the challenge of trying to give people a visual war and peace that they would recognize from the book. And he did this so cleverly because he didn't ram it down your throat with exposition. He knew people had read it. He knew they had felt what they had felt when they'd read it and they had the images in their minds. So he showed them that. And that is really great storytelling. And that's why it is one of the best adaptations out there of the book and I like the fact as well that it shows a great span of the Napoleonic Wars and people trying to live through it as well um, so I don't think there's an easy answer to, as to whether Tolstoy is a hindrance or a blessing um, the point an interesting thing to remember is that Tolstoy was not contemporary to the Napoleonic Wars his, his, his he was not of that generation he was writing historical fiction I mean, my other question is kind of about, well, it's not really a question, it's more just a sort of general point about reception. Um, it says it all that in the midst of the Cold War, this Soviet film ends up receiving that award for greatest foreign film. So we're talking 1969. So some time past Cuban Missile Crisis, sure, but nonetheless, tensions remain between East and West. What was the reception like in Russia? Was it lauded as a great achievement or was it you know this thing is state-sponsored so there's there's no criticizing it i i don't know to the extent of how it was criticized i know that there were mixed reviews around the world at the time because it is a very very long sequence of movies there's actually four movies technically and you can generally people watch them two at a time and two in like two sittings um and i believe that sort of some purists said, well, you can't make a movie about war and peace. It's impossible. So this is just falling down at every moment. But there were a lot of people in Russia who said that this was just the most tremendous achievement and Bondarchuk basically knocked it out of the park. Um, and they were very happy because remember, most people wanted it to be made because the Americans got there first and did the glitzy version. And the Russians were like, well done, man. You, you you kept the flag flying and uh, I believe it um, it was it won quite a few awards in Russia as well whether or not that's because kind of had some state backing or not is a is sort of 
hard to say, but in fairness, it is a great movie. And I think that it wouldn't have done well in Russia at all if they had ruined War and Peace. That is very true. There might have been some unpleasant consequences, shall we say. Tom, let me throw it over to you. What are your thoughts? I'm at a disadvantage because I, I have not read the book. But then I wonder, Josh, without having read the book, does the movie make sense or is it easy to follow? And, yeah, carry on. And I was going to say, I, I, I got to admit, I wasn't going to rush out to, to buy that. And then the, the, the copy I found on YouTube was extremely poor quality. And then hearing you talk about it, I think it might have left out one of the movies because there were some real continuity issues with it. And there was a strange thing where it would go from subtitles to dubbing, you know, like it just languages were jumping around. I, I just, mm -hmm. I, I had trouble following it and getting very excited about it. So, but. Yeah, the, there are a couple, of, I think there is a couple of sort of, uh, yeah, there it's on, it is online in various dodgy places, I believe, which is probably, you know, playing with copyright, but I believe you can find it online. And yeah, there are several versions of it that are just probably like glued together. And, um, you know, it probably doesn't do it justice. You're probably right there, Tom. Um, I mean, the, the, the dubbed version that did get played in America was roundly panned as being awful. Um, so if you ever see a dubbed version, just don't bother with it. Go with the subtitles because apparently the dubbed version is terrible. But um, so the, the, the initial question though, can I, if I, to circle back was. If, if you haven't yeah, read the, the book. book. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, good. Yeah. Great question. Um, now that I've remembered it, <laughs> I sieve brain at work there. No. Um, this is a very interesting question because I actually read the book before I watched the movie. And so there's a great deal of enjoyment to be derived from that fact, I think. Um, I do think that if you watch the movie. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. then you can get a good grasp of the book. I think it does its job really quite well. In honesty, if you're just wanting to like watch a, an epic movie that is about war and peace, the most enjoyable one to watch is probably the, the American one because it's just over an, an epic sort of amount of time and you don't have to lay out the amount of time to watch it. Basically, the amount of time you have to watch it is the only issue I have with this film. So, if, you know, uh, but I think that it is easy to understand. Yeah, I, th I, I, I think it would be understandable what's going on if you haven't read the book, because the book is no less necessarily confusing. So, and then uh, another question, you know, with Waterloo, I, I referenced that 
you know, it does catch the key aspects of, of the battle and, and, mm -hmm. and it, it's a bit of, of a telling of the history then mm -hmm. the battles captured in war and peace. There was the, the, the initial one, I, I'm not gonna endeavor to pronounce it, where Bagration was, was like the rear fighting rear guard mm -hmm. action. I, I think Austerlitz, uh, I don't recall, recall mm -hmm. seeing Borodino. So I think that was one of the parts that wasn't in the version I watched, but, but it, are, is, it, is it a faithful reproduction of, of those actions? So uh, the, 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 first, the first action, which I believe is um, Schonbrunn, uh, which occurred just before Austerlitz, or I, I think it has two names. I think it's also called Hollenbrunn. But um, that is a very, uh, is a rearguard action, like you say. It is faithful to how it's portrayed in the book mostly, um, but it's the... It, it, I could, and I believe it is is mostly, mostly correct to what happened there at the battle with the French attacking and being held back for a good deal of time until nightfall. Um, Austerlitz, Austerlitz doesn't really have a lot of screen time, sort of, in terms of detail, um, so it's difficult to say whether you can get any sort of idea of that. But generally speaking, I think it sort of discusses an accuracy of what happens at the Battle of Austerlitz. And yes, yes, yeah, it, in what it shows of Austerlitz, it only shows a little bit. Um, it does it does show a, a real sort of passage of time during the battle that happened. Um, and at Borodino, um, in, in the same sense as Waterloo, it sort of hits the beats, but in in adapting war and peace you're adapting something you're adapting something that is in itself historically flawed even though tolstoy really researched that battle really really uh, thoroughly to do that section he actually lived on the battlefield to actually for a while to actually uh, to write it it's still uh, a, a, a grand it's it's a grand sort of description but it's an imperfect one so it's not going to it's probably not as accurate as waterloo in terms because it, it, like you say waterloo does do a fairly decent job of showing you the kind of the the sequence okay thanks let me bring marcus in then marcus have you even seen this one because there are no brits in it so surely it doesn't interest you it's not interesting at all is it um no i mean let's face it, it it's as, as Josh started to admit, it's Soviet propaganda. Uh, we have to be careful with Russia because we are effectively at a co another Cold War with Russia currently. They're meddling as always, and Russia are the bad guys. Uh, there's no hiding that. And God, I mean, this isn't Josh's pitch. God, it's long. I mean, there's so much just long. And then Josh said it can never be remade. And then they remake it. It's, it's long, it's not exciting, it's just not epic. It's, if we're just talking purely size and scale, it is awesome, then surely Waterloo would win, or surely something like Avatar would win, as because it's the most expensive, therefore it's the best film. No, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not convinced on this whatsoever. I've never been a fan of it. it. Saying you must like War and Peace is a bit like saying you must like Shakespeare. 
the more that someone says that you must like it because it's a classic just turns me off um I, i'm it's not one that's gripping i've tried to sit through it and you know tom says the language barrier is there is it the dubbing is it the subtitles or is it just the film Oh dear. So Marcus, can I just confirm you're going to take up your position as foreign secretary within what, the next fortnight? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's It's, <laughs> it's starting soon. Um, I mean, yeah, we can't hide what we think about Russia. Um, it'd be unfair on the Russians to say that we're friends with them. Um, but it just... I mean, uh, I think you have to... It's make, not I an think exciting, it, think, interesting think, film. Think, Marcus, let him speak. Come on, you, you've that, torn his think, picture apart. Let him, let him get a word in the, edgeways. I mean, where to, I mean, where to start, dude? Wow. Um, no, the right. First of all, it's not really Soviet propaganda. It's sort of yes, it's triumphantly Russianist. But remember, War and Peace is written by a czarist, and it's if anything, triumphalism over the French. Now, if you want to extend that to the Russians saying we do movies better than the Americans, or at least our movies better than the Americans, I guess you can say that. But I'm not really sure if you can say it's Soviet propaganda so much, really. I mean, that, and that doesn't really speak necessarily to what the quality of the film either. Um, also, in different, like just so, just, just so Zach's podcast doesn't get co complete hate mail here, I think we should make the distinction here that whatever the Russian government does, we are not necessarily all enemies of the Russian people. And, uh, you know, there, uh, there are a lot of, I, I know a lot of nice uh, and uh, intelligent Russians. And uh, <laughs> I think that uh, it would be unfair to say that they are our enemies. Uh, just because they're the Russians and we all haven't all got over the Cold War. Um, so the other thing... Cold War's still going on, Josh. Cold War's still going on. <laughs> well, history history will have to like <laughs> have a few watch, more watch chapters the, on that. Watch the news, not foreign films. It's, it's right there. <laughs> I think a few I think this as a, as a Canadian hockey fan and the, the Russians yeah. are the enemies. <laughs> oh, of course. In, in and, sports, that, and that's another type of cold in, war. It's just in, 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 ice. In, in, in sports, in sports, of course, there are enemies everywhere, Tom. This is, this is undoubtedly true. But uh, yeah, and also, I mean, I'm not sure if a few foreign films wouldn't do you any harm here, Marcus. I'm not, not sure if it wouldn't, you know, do you any harm anyway. But the you nobody has to like war and peace you know i don't think you have to like war and peace to like the opponent wars i read war and peace without really wanting without really thinking what well, i was going to like it and liked it and that's how you should approach it i don't think that just because it's a classic this makes this movie is good that makes this movie good i think this movie is good because it is a classic Marcus sent off with a flea firmly embedded in his ear there. Hurrah. <laughs> Thank you for that, Josh. We shall move the conversation on before, um, I don't know, either the, the troll bot that uh, <laughs> appears to have pitched up in replacement for Marcus this evening has uh, exploded. No, um, I, I jest at Marcus, but that's just Marcus being Marcus. Um, Nice pitch there, Josh, um, even if you haven't 
convinced one of the, the folks in the room. I mean, it's so shocking that I wasn't able to swing Marcus there. <laughs> I'm, I'm, de I'm devastated at this. I was... <laughs> dude, You're convinced I you had a vote there, didn't you? Yeah, I thought I had it in the bag. And, and Tom's just being really polite. <laughs> now now don't you start putting the words in the mouths of my guests we shall move it on i was gonna say a better copy of the film is not yet in my cart so <laughs> well you have what well, you have waterloo which is sort of like the condensed version in a way of, of all the bits that people liked <laughs> so, so what you're saying is bandarchuk had a chance to refine his craft and then to deliver a superior product in 1970. <laughs> well i think it's more like I think it's more like that the, uh, Dino De Laurentiis said, I cannot make a movie with, uh, about Waterloo without Bondarchuk. And Bondarchuk oh, well said, well, yeah, okay. here, have All my right. battle scenes and my ball scenes, you <laughs> idiot. <laughs> well, well played. We shall move it on, uh, gents, because otherwise we'll be here all night, frankly, with you just going around trolling one another. Um, and I'm going to take the reins next for this one because I think Marcus needs a little bit of a breather. So this one is done in the style of Kate Jameson, who, if you're on Napoleonic Twitter, you know that you can't kind of move within the naval Twitter sphere without coming across Kate. Because I'm going to talk to you about a modern classic, arguably the greatest opening film to a franchise that never happened, but which frankly, I think we all wanted. I'm talking about the 2003 film, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Now, there's no sequel. Yes, okay, let's just put that to one side. There are reasons for that, which we'll probably come on to in a bit. There is an important point to make about Master and Commander, which is that it's a little bit different to a number of the pictures that we're hearing over the course of this extended double episode, in that it doesn't depict real events. It's based on the novels, which we've discussed in the past, you know, from Patrick O'Brien's novels, but it's, it's actually a mishmash of novels. So it's not actually true to one particular story. And in some respects, that's a bit of a problem for some people. So we talked about the literary purists earlier, and I think this displeases some of the literary purist for precisely the fact that it doesn't take the crux of the novel and the bits that it does take it changes. I'll explain about that in just a second. But in some respects, I think the fact that it's not depicting a real event also works to its advantage because it's about a sense of culture and a sense of feeling and parachuting you into an experience of life on the seas in a British naval ship and all that that entailed. And I think this does it absolutely beautifully. It works as a truly great war film because a truly great war film needs to quietly grab you, have that sense of mounting tension. It needs to get under your skin, leave you reeling at the protagonist's setbacks and rooting for them to triumph against all the odds. It has to leave you wanting more to make you laugh and maybe even maybe make you cry. But on top of that, to be truly great as a piece of historical filmmaking, it also needs to subtly educate. And I would argue that Master and Commander achieves on all of those things. So for those who don't know the plot, the story is, as I say, a mishmash 
of Patrick O'Brien's novels, and they follow the exploits of lucky, inverted commas, Captain Jack Aubrey, played famously by Russell Crowe, and Dr. Stephen Maturin, played by Paul Bettany, aboard HMS Surprise. They are tasked with taking a French privateer, the Acheron, as it sails for the Galapagos Islands, aiming to damage uh, Britain's Pacific trading fleet. Now, this is where the literary purists will become frustrated because in the novels, the privateer is an American vessel. Now, why didn't they stick to the original? Well, come on, guys, Hollywood. As if Hollywood was going to create a film and market it and sell it in the United States that made the US the bad guys. It wasn't going to happen. So they had to change it to make the French the bad guys. Very sorry to my French listeners. Um, nice to see that we're actually growing in numbers in France because, you know, you were behind the uh, behind the curve. Um, but I still love my American listeners as I dig myself out of a hole as I'm very rapidly digging myself. Um, moving on. Back to the plot, because all is not as it seems. At the start of the film, HMS Surprise is somewhat ironically surprised by the Ashram in a skilled attack in heavy flog and it, uh, heavy flog. Sorry, heavy fog. I've got flogging on the brain, clearly. Um, and the ship barely escapes. Although outclassed and outgunned and quite blatantly needing to head for home, his master's in pieces, the rudder's been shot away, Lucky Jack refuses to quit. He's that kind of grizzled veteran, the guy who doesn't know when he's beaten and triumphs precisely because of it, and engages in this cat-and-mouse game of naval manoeuvres and cunning uh, as he can kind of engages in this battle of wits between the British and French captains. The plot works because despite being a novelization, a dramatization of something that never actually happened, it's not inclined to dig into this good versus evil dynamic that mars so much of filmmaking. Both sides are deeply intelligent. These are two people at the peak of their game just trying to outclass one another. But in, the most important thing for me is that this is a film that educates. And I say that having used this film to educate, which is not something that I did lightly in my teaching days. The nature of the injuries, the surgery used to treat them, the day-to-day -day life aboard ship, the exciting and the mundane, the bullying and the discipline, because hey, yes, I do like my discipline. All of that are brought vividly to life for a very simple reason. The creators really did their research. They went to town on this. They looked at what it was like to be on board one of these ships and then recreated that for the screen. Bettany spent time with the curators at the Royal College of Surgeons before filming. A while back, you might remember that I interviewed Mick Crumplin. Mick was one of the people who sat down with Bettany and showed him, this is how you would handle these instruments. That's the level of precision that went into making this film. And boy, does it show. You know, the, the splintering the effect of these ships being hit by broadsides. All of that is brought together to give you a, a sense, no, it's not perfect, but it's as good a sense as you can get on screen of what it would have been like to be on one of these ships in the midst of a battle, the disorientation, the smoke, the just everything around you going to hell. The result is that you can feel the claustrophobia. You could almost smell the sweat and the gun smoke and the blood and the sea salt. It's one of the few films, as I say, that I've trusted to use as an educational tool. And no matter how much you show of that film, the kids are always left wanting more. Of course, there are flaws. I've talked about the whole privateer thing. Um, and certainly there are 
dumb moments within it. You know, vital intelligence about the build of the Asheron slash actually American privateer, but you know, that's all just kind of glossed over. Uh, she's Yankee built, sir, but somehow the French have got hold of her. Let's move on. Um, but that all is just kind of done in a very clumsy way. Um, you know, some guy just happens to have a brother-in-law who was working in the shipyards. And then I, I saw this ship out of water many, many years ago for a couple of hours. And then I've been able to put together this exact replica little model made out of wood. There you go, sir. Have a nice day and I'll have a, an extra ration of rum. And uh, thank you very much, sir. Yes, it's all very ham-fisted. Um, and, it, you know, there is this whole thing about the Galapagos and the random jolly around the Galapagos that doesn't really serve much of a purpose, but let's put that to one side. In the grander scheme of the cinematic world, it did okay. So it grossed $212 million worldwide, and it was nominated for 10 Oscars, winning two. So, you know, not shabby by any means. Where it lost out is that it did so to the third Lord of the Rings film. And with the best will in the world, all of those war elephants, the armies of the dead, the CGI cities, um, and let's stab a damn a dumb orc in the middle of its face. You know, these, these are difficult things to compete with. Why was there no sequel? Well, <laughs> talk about bad timing. In 2003, we saw the first of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise and another you know, entity that is very hard to compete with, with Johnny Depp's permanently sloshed Captain Jack Sparrow. Pirates cleaned up at the box office. It's had four sequels. They're now talking about yet another one. Um, and to be honest, it probably scratched the let's have a boat film itch in a way that Master and Commander sort of didn't. It had Master and Commander been on its own in its time, it would have done well, but there was a comedic element that worked so well with pirates that meant that pirates could kind of muscle in much more effectively. Master and Commander films fans, sorry, have lived in hope ever since. There were repeated pushes for it. Russell Crowe was on board, um, but there is, you know, a, a Master and Commander prequel that is in the pipeline, though I gather it's going to feature Chris Hemsworth, possibly as a younger Captain Jack Aubrey. I'm not sure whether Thor on a boat is going to take off, but hey, let's let's see how it goes and reserve judgment. Ultimately, Master and Commander works because it tries in the places that really matter. It's not CGI reliant. It's historically focused, but it also knows its limitations. The fact that it isn't portraying actual historical events is precisely its strength. There's a lack of temptation to focus on errors, which would never realistically have been solved in film. Uniforms, weapons, tactics, personality clashes, and even shipboard animals are all there where they should be. The little things fall into place in the midst of a fairly clever plot that does far more than your sort of coma-inducing predictability of Goody triumphs over Baddie and rides off into the sunset with a damsel from in distress who's been rescued sort of thing. There is one thing, however, that I think elevates this film to frankly another level, and it's certain moments within the script writing. 
And I will give you just one of those, which is just frankly, utterly meme-worthy. Because at dinner one night, Aubrey turns to Maturin and asks him to choose between two weevils that are busily burrowing their way through ship's biscuit. The doctor picks the larger of the two, at which point Aubrey bangs his fist on the table and declares, there, sir, I have you. Do you not know that in the service, one must always choose the lesser of two weevils? It works because they are so pissed out of their brains that it just becomes hilarious on that score. It is moments like that that take a film that's educating you and make it just simply a brilliant and memorable entity. Master and Commander ticks so many boxes that you have to consider it amongst the pantheon of great depictions of the Napoleonic era. And with that, I will open it straight up to you guys. You can heckle me, which is not something I say lightly on this podcast. I don't know if it's heckling. You know, I had Master and Commander as, as a close second because, uh, as you suggest, um, a lot of the technical aspects of, of shipboard life, the material culture, the, the uniforms, uh, the, there was so much they got accurate. And there was actually a Canadian that was the historical or slash technical advisor to the film. And, you know, I saw a presentation by him and, and uh, he had images and videos of them trying to get the splintering just right as they had layers of oak and were firing cannonballs through them. And then talked about um, setting up a gun range and firing, setting microphones on the ground and firing cannonballs over them to, to get that kind of worrying humming sound just right. So uh, I think if I have issue with it, it's as an O'Brien fan, you know, and I, I knew there couldn't be a sequel because like the line you reference about the, the weevils, like they plundered all 19 or 20 books for all those lines and incorporated them in this movie. Like, like I don't know what they would have as, as ammunition for, you know, a, a follow-up movie. So like they kind of took all the best bits and, and used them up in, in that movie. And then there's little things, and that's probably if I start putting my stitch counter persona on where, you know, maybe too much running around with uh, like in shirt sleeves with, with no neck cloths, you, you know, like, like they would, the officers at the very least, like they would always be properly dressed, especially in, in view of the men, like they wouldn't dare be seen in, in anything less than, than, than full dress. Like, you know, and O'Brien makes a point in the books to constantly talking about how Aubrey would drive his servant Killick mad because he would insist on wearing his very best or, or number one uniform into conflict because he thought it was respect for his opponents, you know, so you're not Although we, swashbuckling we all... in, in we... shirt sleeves. So, but, but I, I love the movie. I've watched it numerous times, proud to have it in my collection. And, and, uh, and, and I am an O'Brien fan. I have read the books multiple times and, kind of feel the the call of the sea and, and i'm due to go through them again so so let me just chip in i, I know the point is that you guys get to ask me questions but i'm going to turn the tables because <laughs> that's kind of what i like to do um, the host it worked yeah there <laughs> is that um how do you feel as an o'brien fan about this idea of a prequel does it worry you uh, i 
No, I'm not sure I'm worried, but I'm I'm pretty ambivalent about it. I, I don't know. If, if it's out there, I'll watch it. I, I'm just not sure. Like so many times, uh, a sequel or, or, or add-on projects just don't seem to capture the, the essence of, of what the original was. So I, it's, it, it's hard to say. It, it would be fascinating that like some of the most Cochrane-like escapades happen early in Jack Aubrey's career, you know, so if they can have some of that, 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 that could be really interesting to see. But, but I've always said to, to people, if you enjoy Master and Commander, if you like the Hornblower series, then, then maybe pick up a biography on, on Cochrane because his real life escapades are, are better than, than, than fiction. You know, so. I, I was just thinking that, uh, yeah, I was thinking that it was a good point about the uh, how Aubrey likes to be dressed. Um, his somewhat, um, what would be the word, uh, up and down relationship with with clothes that Killer cares with him as well is is, is a never ending source of enjoyment for Patrick O'Brien fans. And I count myself as as one of them. Although on several occasions he does strip naked and swim around the ship. So. I <laughs> there is yeah, but that. that's but but that's sunrise and, and, yeah. and when he's not on right so it's true, just, uh, true. he's not on duty so that's fair not, not not unlike you know if i portray an officer like like if please don't it doesn't, matter, doesn't matter what code I, <laughs> doesn't matter what code i wear if i have a sash and wearing a sword yeah. then, then i'm on right yeah and, absolutely and, uh, there is you'll see it in standing orders and that but oh like, yeah yeah like an officer and the captain especially yeah. captain undressed especially. I, I mean dressed casually and he can refuse to acknowledge the men like yeah you know, like avert his because gaze he, and then they don't have to salute or acknowledge absolutely because yeah he he does appear on deck a lot in his shirt sleeves and stuff and in his cabin and stuff okay but yeah that's a good point and also i was thinking about what zach was talking about with chris hemsworth and whatnot um i i agree with tom on that that I don't know what it's going to look like. I presume there's going to be more spy stuff for Stephen and things and more swashbuckling for Aubrey. Hemsworth is interesting that they've gone with another Australian. Maybe that's, uh, if they're going to do that, maybe that's why they've done that. Uh, although Hemsworth, if you want to see him in action on a ship in a much lesser nautical film, he was in In the Heart of the Sea. There is that. It's not a bad film. Can I just say, so talking about casting Hemsworth, I'm presuming he's he's lucky, he's lucky Jack. Um, I've I've read most of the books and I think they're great. Um, but one yeah, of the things that always the best. Um, yeah, they're up there. They are good. They are good. I mean, the best. I, you know, I'm I'm pleased that I spent <laughs> no, a couple of years no working on the ship. No other ones out there, Marcus. No other fictional series in English. Matches Josh, them. Josh, Josh, my <laughs> dear friend, you are talking to the ultimate shot i know <laughs> there is oh, no... I admit, josh will agree <laughs> o'brien is so much better than war and peace it is just actually yeah. if you but... actually if you read war and peace and patrick o'brien you'll actually find that their styles of writing are quite similar and that's actually why i like war and peace yeah so know, um the sharp, point sharp sharp is Uhtred, I, I lose track of who's who right? you get a, a hero Absolutely. a sidekick like it's such a formula is but the the point was um Save your I remember lucky Tom. jack trying to 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 being about the food and he's quite he's what he's described in the earlier novels as waddling a bit stocky a bit overweight mm -hmm. average and they've got kind of 
um, Russell Crowe in his prime, and Chris Hemsworth is a buff man. Let's face it. Like, he likes to get his shirt off in every film, and he has an unrealistic, you know, kind of goal for us men to ever try to reach. That is not Lucky Jack. You know, he is overweight and very good at what he does with the fighting, but it's not necessarily that he's going to be like this guy who spends six hours a day in the gym because he's on a ship and then he goes eating and then he goes to the opera. He spends a lot of time in the tavern and then going back to the opera and trying to do those kind of things. He's an 18th century man and they liked uh, a sort of a, a gracious... Silhouette yeah. in the 18th century. So there is a slim part of me that wants to say to Marcus, you know, when you say that Chris Hemsworth is unrealistic, you know, speak for yourself, but <laughs> let's be honest, who am I kidding? I'm, I'm watching the video here going, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's only a really fine line. Mm. Sometimes I squint and I just confuse Zach for Chris Hemsworth all the time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so, easily done, so annoying. <laughs> He's getting but, stopped for autographs all the time. Yeah. Like, I loved you in Marvel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I think they're really good. I, I'm interested to see what happens with a, a prequel. I hope they do kind of um, the first couple of books, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, it was interesting seeing on the other social media channel the other day, some people criticising Master and Commander, because I think you've got to really pick. They were going, there wasn't enough action. They didn't like the the nature elements and that got it too slow. But Have they read the books? I mean, I like, to, to me, I think it's one of those, actually, if you just have action throughout a naval action, it would start to blur. Is, was that the first one where they got ambushed or was it the, the middle one or was it the one at the end? I think you need that pace change because... Like you say, Josh, you know, the books have real romance and spy. Uh, they didn't get into the spy element at all, but there was probably too much to get into that one film. Uh, no, it's one of those films that absolutely stacks up. It's it's a fantastic film. I think, yeah, there's very few flaws with it, really. I think, except for if you are comparing it directly with an A book, you struggle because, like Tom says, he's, they've merged seven or eight books there, really, to, to get the funny lines about the weevils. Um, put that in um, yeah I think that's the only way you kind of really struggle with it it's it's great it was, it was a shame they couldn't fit in the debauched sloth <laughs> and that's a whole podcast in its own right <laughs> right there okay. <laughs> okay let us wrap up the sort of first section of this with the final pitch of our eight and we have Marcus I have saved Marcus to the end, which leaves us a great mystery about what Marcus could possibly be here to talk about. Marcus, are you suddenly doing, you know, something completely left field? Are you doing a silent film or um, something that shows how the British weren't just gods throughout this period or something? It was Waterloo 1970 you wanted me to do, wasn't it? Nice try. Stop trolling. (laughs) You've been predictable. (laughs) I've been nominated and volunteered to do, uh, of course, Sean Bean's Shark, a series that so many of us um, love and hold dear into our hearts. It is possibly for the generation the, the icebreaker that brings Napoleonic period to so many. And yes, it has its flaws, and I will touch upon those, and people like to highlight those. But without it, I would argue that many would not have found the era, as it has popularised it so much to the masses and it is so popular 16 films including 
one or two questionable ones, and a special Sharps Legends of uh, Rifleman Cooper going back and telling the highlights as well. It's been exported onto almost every single DVD. It's on TV repeatedly every month. The Facebook main fan club has got over 15,000 members, plus there's separate fan clubs, most of which have got over 5,000 members. There's two different rival meme groups on Facebook, and it is so popular that even last year, the books have come back last year, and Jason Solke has written a making of book about it. So the spirit of Sharp from the early 90s to the day are still going. Sharp's meant to be our everyman hero, the working class boy, the orphan, illiterate, involved in crime, who's dragged himself up looking from the gutter into the army through fortune. And as you delve into the, the prequel books, um, some uh, aptitude, he's managed to get a commission. Now, in our, in our films, we see it's through the, the slash and thrust of downing French dragoons in the water and saving Wellington's life in Portugal. He very quickly becomes an officer. But what we get from that is a quick sense of adventure, and we are meant to suspend our full belief in history. This is swashbuckling, and at no point are you meant to go, that is Wellington, and that is his special forces, 95th Rifle Special Air Service, who basically parachuted into Portugal with their heavy machine guns, long-range sniper rifles with scopes on top, and they shot Bonaparte, uh, but they just missed at the last moment. It's not entirely accurate, but by Jove, is it entertaining? It's got one of the most fantastic supporting casts. It's got, from the very beginning, basically, a very young Daniel Craig. Um, with uh, Neil Dudgeon, Midsummer Murders, anyone, um, through Liz Hurley, the great late great Pete, Pete Postlethwaite, and so many members of um, the cast that actually struggle. Brian Cox, who's now in just everything, um, Hugh Ross, uh, Michael Byrne, uh, Lord Julian Fellows, uh, Toby Stevens is in the later ones. There is so many people, I, I just can't even mention them all but they're there and they put in small roles, large roles. I know I've missed some out and I'll get um, chastised for that, but there's a brilliant, brilliant cast. It gives us this sense of the squad. Now, something that Sharp had for love or hate was the small budget. So we don't have these huge epic scenes. Yes, Josh, Massive Borodino battles. We don't have Rod Steiger with a um, looking up at a boom, going, ah, oh, the old guard has fallen. And with the thousands and thousands of Red Army uh, extras in, in both those films. Um, we don't have the budget for big ships uh, and naval battles. So they micro-managed it down to just a few core characters. And that gives us what arguably the other films possibly don't have is a great sense of this brotherhood, this camaraderie, these brothers in arms who are willing to die for each other. They're there in The Chosen Men, which again, historically, yes, they were actually uh, junior NCO and not snipers chosen out. But hey, this is our swashbuckling adventure. They're taken through 
and for different reasons the, the car starts to, to shrink some of it for script writing and some of it because well they they got sick and they fell out with the script writers and they there's all sorts of bits went on behind the scenes and it, it, it shrinks down and shrinks down until we we mostly just have uh sharp and his second in command under uh, dar o'malley and it gives us the entire peninsula war and a bit more sharp goes home in regiment one of actually most people's favorite episodes where there's actually the least amount of fighting because we see a bit of britain we see a bit of regency life we see some of the the politics behind the measurements with some really really high acting in that episode um we see a strange but actually very entertaining version of uh, a prequel to peterloo and some politics in georgian britain and of course we get uh, paul bettany as the prince of orange and waterloo as kind of a huge climax and defeating the old guard or so we think but sharp was so popular they had to give it another go they came back and they gave us challenge which they condensed two of the three prequel india books in and to me they're quite they're quite criticized but i love challenge i think they did a really good job of taking two prequel books condensing them and making a sequel and it gives us everything we want yeah, then they try to do peril Let's say about the, about the better. Um, but what we still got through them all as well is we've got our toe being dipped in time and time again. People still want it more and more. If you were going to sit down and watch one of these films with your other half, with a wide circle of friends, Sharp's normally the DVD that gets picked. Sharp's the one that's often on on a rainy Sunday on TV. Sharp's the one that you can show to your whole family and people will recognise actors here and there. And I hate to say it, Sharp's the one that's got the soundtrack. Now, Master and Commander has a fantastic soundtrack, but John Tams's voice just is peak. And I, I'm biased. I've heard him sing live and he's a lovely, lovely man. And he's a gentleman. And, you know, all these three films do have good soundtracks. I'll admit that now. Master and Commander's up there. It, especially with the violins, um, but John Tams and his rendition of Over the Hills and Far Away, it spawned its own CD, uh, The Sound of Sharp, and hopefully everyone's got that, if not, it's out there, um, where there's lots of songs from the era to give us more, again, more history, uh, recruiting songs and songs for, for loved ones. Sharp also even spawned um, additional throughout things. There was a Sharp fan club, the Sharp Appreciation Society for many years, the SAS. Uh, which shows its popularity. There was a Sharp cookbook, it, many people know, it, it existed. And they even actually managed to start up um, Sharp's Children, uh, a Sharp charity, uh, officially to try to help uh, the, the poorer children uh, in some of the regions that they did the film. Its impact is massive. It is probably impossible to see reenactment events today without somebody referencing Sharp, rightly or wrongly. It has an overarching impact on our understanding of the Napoleonic Wars. And it is one of the most entertaining DVDs, films, TV episodes that you can reach for entertainment value on the era. Therefore, I do think Sharp is one of the most epic Napoleonic films ever made. It's epic because there are so many of them. I shouldn't start with such a churlish comment, should I? But you describe <laughs> it as epic. There are so many of them. Of course so it's many. epic. I mean, you bang on about war and peace going on. for Oh, it's so long to get through them. Okay, then. 
Try sticking all of the Orc Sharps episodes back to back and watching those nice. in one go. And, and let's nice. and let's also <laughs> let's also sort of bring up the point that if you do that, you will see the same story replay at least ten times. <laughs> Which girl will it be this week, Marcus? <laughs> and also, can I'm I just so say? Sure about it. I'm not so sure about it being a family film either. I, <laughs> I lent the box yeah. set to my brother-in-law. And then it got to the point where every time she heard the theme song, my sister-in-law would, would call and threaten to wring my neck. So she was so tired of this tedious affair. So. <laughs> and oh, don't man. you start coming after the music either, because oh, yeah. so I'm not, not being touch the Boccherini. You will not touch the Boccherini. <laughs> exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> there is no way in hell you are having, uh, much though I have a lot of love for John Tams, um, there's no way in hell you're having that. Uh, the Boccherini is just peerless. It's so good. Um, so don't you come at me and my classical music fixation because you're not going to win. Okay, Chris. Um, but sorry, sorry. You confused the Hemsworth again. Um, no, I give it his credit for Master Commander, but John Tams' music out of all parts of the film really stands up. You know, he's a man who really did his research into the era. Um, when I've heard him sing since, he did his research into World War I songs and working men's songs from the late 1800s. I mean, they had to find the accuracy somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's about it. Um, actually, the accuracy in um, Paul Rifleman Moore, who, uh, Richard Moore, who he barely actually features in the films, but he's, he's there in the extras, uh, speaking extras, um, who is a historical researcher who lived and breathed it when they were filming and everyone else went back to the... The famous hotels in Ukraine and we're having their cheap lager parties and their, their riots, bacon and things you can hear about in other podcasts. Uh, Richard uh, Moore actually just camped out on the film set every night living as an 1800 soldier. Words he, he instructed them on how to load and fire the Grand Bess and the Baker rifles and so there, there was the attempt but it was ITV in the 90s. It had a tiny budget and uh, it did as best as it could really. I think we have to also recognize here just you know as, a, as in the spirit of bipartisanship that all the best land-based napoleonic wars stuff apparently is made are made in ukraine what <laughs> there is there is a point there actually there is the thing, <laughs> yes. is the, ukraine in the 90s what is going on everything's like um i think it's partly a question of money isn't it to, to be really brutally honest about it um as Marcus mentions, you know, other podcasts have covered this. So, you know, I make no secret of the fact that I work very closely with History Hack and have had the pleasure alongside Marcus in a number of instances of joining some of those cast reunions as the sort of mm. voice of history. And you can hear a whole series, there are a whole series of them. You know, we've had Junior Fellows on and um, I do enjoy teasing Marcus about how he wasn't there for the first one because that was the one that Sean Bean was there for. Um, and a certain Chris Hemsworth lookalike apparently was. Um, it's uncanny, it's so similar. So, similar. so if, if you are a Sharp fan, go have a listen on History Hack. You will hear the cast reminiscing, and it is very clear that actually the the region was suffering heavily from poverty. And, and that's so, the reason, wasn't it? I mean, to, to get serious for it, they were paying the Russian or Soviet, actually no, for this one, the, the Ukrainian army, um, they were paying them a dollar a day and mm -hmm. all the cast got so ill. It's the reason they recast Wellington, for example. They were eating, you know, local food and drinking local water. You know, it made them so, so ill. Some of the cast refused to go back. 
so we get big recasts. Um, so looking at the series as a reenactor, on the plus side, the books and, and the movies inspired countless people to come join reenacting groups. You know, on the negative side, like they all want to be 95th. And then when you do get them out on the field, then you have to uh, deprogram them or untrain them mm. from a lot of the, the bad habits that, you know, like tap loading, the, this idea of spitting a, a musket ball down the barrel. It's like, my God, man, you want to <laughs> blow your head off? Like, Why would you do that? Before, Fortunately, as someone got to Cornwall and, and he changed his writing and, and took yeah. away a, a lot of that stuff, but it was, uh, mm -hmm. it, it's pretty, pretty bizarre. So, and, and I recognize it's done on a budget and, and a very small scale, but there's, um, the shame is if, if you look at the uniform details and a lot of the aspects of it, it's it just not a, a very accurate representation. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it does, like you say, uh, admittedly, it has brought a lot of people into wanting to learn about history, but it, um, it, it's, it's not the best face of it for that I, I've seen. I haven't seen them all. I have seen some of them. And I was also, this was another thing I was thinking about. I mean, I, I've told everybody here that I, I've never been able to get excited about Sharp. Maybe that's because I didn't see it when I was a kid um, or younger. I don't know. Uh, but I don't know if, if you, if, if sort of the attraction is there, if you don't, if it doesn't catch your imagination when you're like a teenager or something like that. And yeah, it, it's, it, it, there's a lot of, well, I'll say irritating st stereotypes that you, you come across a lot of on Twitter. Um, amongst the historical community that I'm pretty darn sure was learned from Sharp. <laughs> this is the ultimate point, isn't it? The, I mean, Marcus made this point earlier. This is pure entertainment and it doesn't really purport to be anything else. And you are meant to suspend your disbelief. And if you're prepared to do that, Sharp's brilliant. There's no mm. qualms about that. The issue that I've had, and I've said this before, and I say this again as somebody, look, I came to this period through Sharp. So I have a huge amount of love for the series as an entity. But the trouble is that people in many cases don't suspend disbelief. And there's, you can't blame the creators for that. It's perhaps part of the success and the enjoyment of the show that people take it and therefore they go, well, it's on telly, so it must be true. And I think I've perhaps told this story to a couple of you before about how I was at the brilliant rifles museum in winchester in walks a guy uh, into the museum gallery he picks up a baker rifle and just goes yeah it's sharp in it puts it back down and walks out of the gallery and that's all he took from his visit to that section of, of the museum and that's the tragedy isn't it that people go oh i've seen it on tv therefore i know all about it and there's nothing else that can be learned from it as a piece of entertainment, I can't argue with you, Marcus. It is entertaining. I wouldn't necessarily agree that it's family viewing. Some of it is a little bit sort of um, racy in places, shall we say? And some of the language isn't the sort of thing that you'd perhaps yeah. um, put in front of your kids. <laughs> a certain, a certain montage of a B word on YouTube. <laughs> you read my mind. Hey, hey mum, want to watch some good old wholesome swashbuckling? Just like Errol Flynn, seriously. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, we've all kind of 
picked on the same things, haven't we? Um, good fun. Is it the greatest? I'm, I was actually quite surprised at how little uh, people picked up on the sharp thing when I put it up there as the tweet that instigated all of this. Marcus, do you want to kind of come back and try and shoot us all down with your SAS style sniper rifles? <laughs> yeah, no. I think it's incredibly entertaining. I think it, you know, I know Zach, I know Zach found it through that. I just think that we have to take the positives that it did bring people to the history. Like maybe that was why the guy would visit the Green Jackets Museum. Maybe that's why, you know, that people can temper it with the realism and then would use it as a gateway and then we'll go in and do much deeper research and realize that it's not entirely accurate. I just think it's so entertaining. Um, it's, it's up there. Um, I will always want to watch a bit of Sharp, listen to a bit of John Tam's music, and it's always going to hold a very special place to, to so many people. Um, out of all the films, you know, I, I love it. I would buy Master and Commander and Waterloo memorabilia, but I didn't. I bought Sean Bean's sword. Just as he drops that one in there. <laughs> it wouldn't be Marcus talking about Sharp if he didn't mention the fact that he spent, and he's quite lucky here that I've forgotten how much money it was, um, on the, the prop that Sean Bean carried in a number of episodes. So that brings us to the end of our standard pictures. We are now going to go around the room and do honourable mentions. Now, these can be other films that have featured in the, the extended double episode or you can just pick others just completely at will whatever you prefer um folks will remember that in the first half i did kind of make a dishonorable mention for pride and prejudice and zombies which is <laughs> dishonorable in, in every possible sense of the term but it's just compelling viewing partly because it's so hilariously bad and partly because i like matt smith but i do want to do an honorable mention for hornblower yeah um now i'm gonna because we've heard a little bit about in the previous part about the original hornblower the film i'm just gonna kind of put the the series out there the sort of naval equivalent of sharp if you will um it's a lot of fun um, I can't pretend to have a huge handle on its accuracy in relation to the novels, but if you want Master and Commander, but sort of drawn out over a series of episodes, I'm not equating the two because I do think that MNC Master and Commander sits well above uh, Hornblower in terms of its representation. But particularly in the early episodes where you're talking about kind of issues of honour and so on, there are elements of naval life and you know, sort of late 18th, early 19th century life that do come across very nicely in those sequence of films that makes it worth your time to just kind of dip into. They are nicely done, um, shot, I believe, slightly later than Sharp, but not kind of hugely separate in terms of time. I think there was kind of an overlap towards the end of the Sharp series where they're kind of in roughly the same places, uh, but they had a much bigger budget for Hornblower. Um, and I think that probably shows. So that's my honourable mention for folks to go away and have a little bit of a look at. Tom, what about you for honourable mentions? Uh, I know it was in your, your first segment, The Duelists. You know, that's one of my, my favourite films. I, I love the, the, I don't know, the, 
the reality, the the brutality of of the sword duels. You, you know, it's not a dance. It's this raw, panting, sweating, you know, gasping for breath thing. So, um, but I got another one. I'll go off the board, and uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard oh. of this one called "The Emperor's New Clothes." You know, with Ian Holm. So it's kind of a an alternate history where there's a, a a doppelganger for Napoleon smuggled into St. Helena. And the idea is that they're going to do a great reveal and say Napoleon has escaped. But, you know, this guy gets into his role, really starts acting Napoleon, and then he dies. And then the real Napoleon, no one will believe it's him <laughs> as he's in Paris and, and trying to, to get everyone back on his side. So it's a, it's a favorite film, one I love to revisit and, and quite enjoy. So, and, and I, you know, I think the, the clothing, the, the, the settings and that, it, it's all, you know, pretty good for capturing this time period. So. I can't believe it. I was going to choose Emperor's New Clothes as well, and I thought no one else would. I thought Zach was definitely going to go with Hornblower, predictable. Uh, Mr. Zach, sorry, Chris, no Zach. Um, but I was, I, yeah, I think Emperor's New Clothes is quite fun, and it does give us the what ifs um, that if Napoleon had gone back and seen Waterloo, he goes back there and sees the the battlefield tourism, doesn't he? And people making money out of selling questionable tourist gifts, and and people, you know, having mugs of him and pictures of him. I think that's quite poignant. I think that's quite that was quite well handled, actually, as a semi-funny film. Uh, that was quite well, well well done. Ian Holm, actually, I think he was one of the few non-French actors who played Napoleon three times, at least twice. Um, he was he was up there quite a few times. Um, I know Robin Cook was one of the other ones who did him twice, and he's actually he's Doughty in Hornblower. And he's Napoleon very briefly in Sharp, and there's a crossover somewhere else as well. Um, so yeah, there's, there's all quite connected. Um, yeah, Hornblowers, Hornblowers. I'm surprised. I think uh, I'm surprised it didn't get a full a full pitch uh, from part one. I think reading what they've chosen, uh, Hornblower should have definitely pitched um, beaten some of those. Uh, but yeah, Emperor's New Clothes is a really good fun one. Um, there's all the original Hornblower. If we can choose the, the big old film which i suppose is a bit that like the, that the gregory peck one the gregory peck as captain hornblower that was a which is one. kind of yeah which is kind of what they think they're doing with master commander in many ways you know they make the, the later in the career and then go back and do the at the beginning maybe i don't know but it's um there's there's not enough when you start to look through it and then you've got the the lines of torres vedras film and we've got john malkovich oh, as well into oh dear yeah we've got a lot worse we've got a lot more bad films than good films to choose from i think unfortunately uh, yeah that that one get, i think that one gets an honorable mention of the worst film made um unfortunately john malkovich is wellington just being about the worst casting imaginable so at what point are you going to start creating a pitch for a biopic of wellington because I'm frankly amazed that you haven't tried to write that already, Marcus. It's crying out, isn't it? Just, just absolutely shocking that it's not happened. Mm. I think you'd um, that you could try to do the whole life thing, but I think you'd you'd start it at about seven pm at Waterloo and then do his later life. That would be uh, entertaining. Wouldn't, wouldn't enhance in wouldn't kind of enhance you to Wellington too much, but would be very very interesting mm. to do the politics. I think that I think genuinely. As we're getting another Napoleon biopic um, this coming year, um, and there's only been 
20 or 30 of those made that it is time for a Wellington biopic. Hey. And a Blucher one. And um, uh, a Barclay de Tolly one. Yeah, and, I, I uh, think there, I think there's definitely one needs to be made about Russian Russian headquarters in 1812. That is just <laughs> absolutely amazing. <laughs> Go on, Josh. Honorable mention from you. Okay. Um, there are a few that I really like. One of them is not set in the Napoleonic Wars. It's the it's the during the Terror, and it's the Scarlet Pimpernel, specifically the one with. Um, uh, I think it's Anthony Andrews and Jane Seymour uh, that uh, I really loved the book, The Scarlet Pimpernel, and uh, that's a really good adaptation. Obviously, it's taking mass liberties everywhere and actually quite a lot of stuff. You think about the French Revolution comes from The Scarlet Pimpernel. But um, yeah, that's entertaining stuff. Also, there's an, uh, a movie with uh, Dirk Bogard, and it could also be Alec Guinness called HMS Defiant, or in sometimes it's called Damn the Defiant. And it's basically about a mutiny. Yeah. Uh, that's good. And um, if you just want, if you want Hollywood epic cheese, then The Pride and the Passion, Frank Sinatra, Sophia Loren, and Cary Grant in the Peninsular War. So there's lots of us uh, uh, kind of nodding yeah. and, and smiling in response yeah. to i'm thinking uh, the, the, yeah is that is, the, is that the cannon the yeah the gun c c's forest, c's forest. Gun. yeah which, which is the one that again if actually if i got to choose yes i'd like a wellington bar but actually if you're going to choose one book to make into a film it would be death of the french slash rifle yeah. and dot pretty good, pretty good is a great swashbuckling book um got some really dark moments you know his, yeah. his best his best friends uh being hung from a tree right behind him as he's running away and uh does certainly bring up the horrors of the peninsula war but um that'd be a, that would be a great one to, to make also in in the in the sort of the genre of foreign films you have monsieur n which is about napoleon and saint Helena and whether he died there or not and uh is it uh which is the one with is, is it colonel chambert um with Gerard Depardieu, that's the one with the famous cavalry Carasio charge that everybody shares online. Yes. Um, that's pretty good. And the, what's the one about the Novemberists in Russia? That's got the amazing cavalry charge. Ah, yes. That... Yes, but I have issues with that on a very kind of basic functionalist level. You have to understand, I have to explain this to you that actually, that is actually almost exactly what happened. For real? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, but, I'm not being funny, there. but the deployment of the squares. Yep. They they basically yep. sandwiched two squares side by side Three. and 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 thought this was a good idea. Well, we could do an entire episode on the Decemberists, and I could explain. I could help explain why this is the way. But actually, except for the bit where they run onto the ice and they fire into the ice, it's almost exactly. It's actually darn good. Is it? Oh, how okay, the Decemberist revolt ended? But yeah, that's um, the Union of Salvation. Um, now I've heard that, that is actually like people love it in Russia, um, but some historians take issue with it glorifying one side or another. There is there, watch it for entertainment is the point, and I think that's the point of everything that has been said here. You should enjoy this <laughs> as entertainment, and then read what happened. And that is a really nice moment at which to end this show. So well wrapped for me, Josh. Thank you for that. Thank you for for doing my job for me. Folks, if you're still with us and you've stuck with this into what is nearly hour four of this show, um, firstly, thank you 
for sticking with it because it's been an I can't even talk anymore we've been recording that long and I'm that shattered from it it's been long um so thank you for your patience there will be a twitter vote whether or not people will have lost the will to live by the time they finish this and get to the twitter vote remains to be seen and whether or not I'll just have ritualized abuse hurled at me for the fact that some other film didn't get a mention because people didn't want to pitch it and I didn't want to do every single Napoleonic film that's ever been created. I don't know, but we but shall All see. three Mutiny on the Bounties in separate ones. <laughs> 1780s, Marcus. <laughs> Get your dates right, man. <laughs> but seriously, yeah, Tom, there, yeah. Tom, Josh, Marcus, thank you for joining me this evening. Um, Remind people about your Twitter handles just quickly so that they can stay in touch with you and you know perhaps they want to come and discuss your your particular choices. Tom, do you want me to you're busily checking your phone? <laughs> so I'm guessing I'll come back to you in a moment. Marcus. Uh, at mcrib history on Twitter. And Josh. Uh, I am at Land of History on Twitter. At Land of History and then Tom. At Tom, 4141 Tom. Okay, there you go. So, folks, you can find them on Twitter. They're all lovely people. Go follow them. Um, you will find your Twitter life greatly enriched because they're not trolley types. They're just nice people who like to share history. Um, thank you all for, for joining me once again. And thank you once again to listeners uh, for sticking with it. The Napoleon Assist will be back very soon. Remember that you can do me a massive favour by whacking that like button, hitting the share button, subscribing so that you can find your way back, and if you're particularly enjoying the content, leaving a review. As ever, huge shout out to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Marshall patron, Marcus Cribb, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham, Stephen Gillen and Michael Guest, and my Mentioned in Dispatches patrons. Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, an anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, R Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, and Stephen Coulson. Remember that you can also support the Napoleon Assist via Kofi. If you're interested in the Patreon tier of type of support or for, uh, in donating via Kofi, have a look in the description to this episode. You'll find the links where you can see basically what it all involves. Whatever support you are able to offer, thank you so much for it. It does mean the world. This is effectively a double episode. So the Napoleon Assist is going to three episodes a month this is in effect two mashed together i may be able to squeeze a in effect fourth into the schedule or i may not uh, we'll have to see how that plays out but there will be at least one more this month i will be speaking to a number of brilliant researchers on the most significant woman of the napoleonic era so you've got another deep detailed discussion incoming very soon. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends, 
Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.